Hey, Tim. Yes. Derek. Guess what? What? We're going to talk about Batman for another six hours. You ready? (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. We're only going to talk about one of them, though, since there's only one that we haven't talked about yet. That's right. And that is the Batman from 2022. That's right. That's what this episode's about. So if you haven't seen it, don't listen unless you don't care that we're going to ruin it. Well... Listen, but you know later after you've watched. Yeah, it. return to us. Or if you yeah. want to spoil, that's fine. We'll spoil it to you. But definitely listen to us, no matter what. Don't listen to him. You don't know what he's talking about. Sorry, I guess I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Derek. I know, after two episodes equaling five hours, I have nothing more to say about this character. Liar. Good point. <laughs> You're right. I, I am excited to talk about this again because, as you know, comic book heroes are right in my alley. It is, and this is a... Uh, so, we're on the show uh, Transmissions from the Forbidden Planet. My name is Tim. My name is Derek. And we're going to be doing our Batman Volume 3. Ooh, I like this. Yeah. What we're going to do is we're going to break it down into one-minute intervals. So we're going to talk about the first minute and do a two-hour show on that and then talk about the second minute. (laughs) Right, there you go. There's a lot to be said, minute by minute. There's a lot of minutes. So this will last another 14 years, I think. (laughs) Yeah. So if you listen to us in season two, and uh, we had a volume one and a volume two where we basically broke down the history of Batman from his introduction in Detective Comics in 1939 all the way up to just pretty much just short of this year of 2022. Right. With Matt Reeves as the Batman. Right. And we covered the gamut, the comics, we covered the cartoons, the TV yeah. shows, the movies. Yeah, right. We got a little bit of everything in there for you. Yeah, we did. Just look around. And um, so now we got to talk about the Batman, right? Well, then let's do it. Okay. Now? Intro music. Dun, 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 dun. You and I had a conversation about this because we watch a lot of movie videos and stuff like that, and oh, yeah. we watch guys doing press and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm a I'm a pretty big Christian Bale fan. Me too. The Dark Knight, and uh, he whenever he does press for any movie, ever since The Dark Knight Rises is done, yeah, is constantly being asked questions about the Dark Knight trilogy and Batman. The Dark Knight trilogy, or it's, hey, did you see Ben Affleck as Batman? Or, hey, did you see this person as Batman? Or, hey, what do you think? You know, it's always Batman. He will forever have to answer questions about who's Batman currently. Yeah. And lastly, Robert Pattinson about to take on Batman. Do you have any advice for him with taking on this iconic role? Good for him. Just make it his own. Don't listen to the naysayers at all. Think about it. Everybody protested when Heath 
was cast as the Joker. Look what an absolutely brilliant performance he gave. Don't listen to those guys. Do his own thing. He's a fascinating actor. He's a great choice. Giving his kind of methody, serious guy acting, you always kind of expect him to pull a uh, Terminator salvation and like start <laughs> beating up the reporter. What don't you fucking understand? But I gotta say, he tends to handle it in grace, and you can yeah. see his eye. You can see his eyes go a little flat sometimes, yeah. and just kind of like, here we go again with the Batman questions. Yeah. So you know, it's it's just a drag for him, isn't it? Don't you think? I I think it has to be just because that's a part of his career. He answered a ton of those questions while doing those movies, which span what like seven years of his life. Right. So you know, you finally get to a point where you're not that. Someone else has taken on the cowl and cape and the legacy right. of Batman. You're right. like, okay. Now they can answer all of those questions, and they do, yeah. but you'll, you'll yeah. never let go from that grasp because there's people in favor. Like we're talking to one right now, which is Tim, who Christian Bale, he has proclaimed as his Batman. Yes, right. And so there are a lot of people that, that – and they're not going to ever let that go. So he's forever on this Mount Rushmore of uh, Batman faces right, that are right there, you know? Well, stay tuned for the rest of the episode on Christian Bale being my Batman. But anyhow, as to give you a little pre-hint, but but we also have to include Ben Affleck in this too because obviously he's still a very active actor and yeah. the most recent Batman. And he he seems to be even a little more annoyed when asked questions, don't you think? Well, I mean, the ones that I saw him in interviews get kind of aggravated with is while he was still in the part of Batman, yeah. he was uh, it was announced he was going to be doing his own solo Batman, writing and directing. Right. And uh, he he was trying to do press for another movie that he had done at that time, wrote and directed, called, I believe it was Live by Night. Right. Instead of asking questions about that movie he was doing press for, they were asking, well, what's going on with Batman? Are you Have you written it? And all, you know, and... Basically, he he would start to get in like God. This it's such a pain in the ass. It's like every time I mention Batman, it gets this huge, you know, clickbait. Uh, when I was doing this movie, it took me two years to get it together, but nobody ever asked me where's Live by Night. You know, they asked me, it's Batman, Batman, Batman. Yeah. Batman. He's even reflected since, saying he always took the part. He always loved being the part. It just it, it ended up being something that. When you're dealing with an intellectual property that's not your own, yeah, everyone can meddle in your business, and so it becomes not fun after a right. while. And when people are constantly opening that scab, it becomes annoying. Right. Right. So, I mean, if you go through the, the history of, of the – since we're on the topic, if you go through the history of the actors who have played Batman, yeah. not a lot of them look back on kindness with it. There's – there, there were two. <laughs> yeah, right. I look back on it with, with a lot of kindness, and that's Michael Keaton. Yeah, because he still gets. He, I mean, uh, granted, he did don the cape again. Well, he did it for the Flash that's coming out. Right. Okay. And then he did that canceled Batgirl thing. But he's never shied away from. No. When I met him, people were coming up to him and talking about it. And of course, I was kind of geeking out about it. And he was not like, oh, geez, that he was very, he very fond and he was very kind and he yeah. answered questions he he i think he realizes hey you know this put me somewhere you know <laughs> right and then of course adam west of course embraced it after pushing away from it for a long time for a long it time yeah. his career <laughs> batman is a nut you're right i mean any guy who runs around in tights fighting crime 24 hours a day all his life stays peaked and ready for this is is, is a little cuckoo his go his coconut is strange he is a nut so you gotta understand that and you gotta play him like that but i tried to do batman as a very likable nut 
and uh, uh, yeah, well, that's enough of this. It's sort of the way uh, Shatner did with Kirk for right. years. You know, yeah. he totally was like, I hate this fucking thing. I want to be T.J. Hooker for ten years. <laughs> right, exactly. Get a light. It's it's just a TV show. <laughs> I mean, look at you. Look at the way you're dressed. <laughs> turned an enjoyable little job that I did as a lark for a few uh, years into a colossal waste of time. <laughs> yeah, and then and, and he just kind of embraces it after a while. You kind of, I think you just, you probably get tired of fighting it. Yeah, oh, I'm you sure. Know? I, even Spock. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sure Christian Bale is probably to that point. And yeah. I mean, he's done so much incredible work since then. Yeah, of course. You know, I think he probably feels like I'm proud of what I've done and I can have fun looking back on this whole Batman thing. You know, when somebody asks him, what do you think of Robert Pattinson? And did you give him any advice and shit like that? You know, of course, as we're leading into the Batman, um, Mm -hmm. we we, we should talk about what he would brought up that that Ben Affleck was supposed to um, carry on the role. And I think everything got a little um, overwhelming for him, maybe. Right. Yeah, I mean, he basically has said in an interview that... I, I really I had a better time on Batman vs. Superman, which I really enjoyed doing. And Justice League was, <clears throat> unfortunately, like, um, you know, touched by, you know, some personal tragedy and, uh, of you know, uh, death in Zack's family. And uh, it just, like I say, sometimes things sort of work in jail, and sometimes they just, uh, you know, you, you seem to be just having one problem after another, you know. I really loved Batman vs. Superman, and, and I really love Zack, and I, I love putting on the costume, and the, the idea of doing the digital alteration to the voice was really interesting to me, And uh, but uh, I do have some really fond memories, particularly of Batman vs. Superman, and how exciting that was, and how uh, energizing it was, and, and uh, how much fun we had. You know, so he's like, he was writing his own solo Batman called the Batman right. that was supposed to be a precursor to why Batman was like he was by the time we see him in Batman v Superman. Versus, why is right. he so grizzled and tough and doesn't care if he kills people and all of this stuff? Right. And it was supposed to be set in Arkham Asylum. It was a one situation place, and it was he wanted it. He wrote it R rated. Mm. It was basically Batman in the raid, is what he was saying. Oh, okay. And so for me, when I found that out, I was just like, "Holy shit, this is right. awesome!" And so yeah. knowing that he was working on that, and then Warner gets involved, and I found that I had kind of at just some point lost my enthusiasm or passion for it you know I was like this should really be made by somebody for whom it's their wildest dream you know come true and for me it was it had become like something different and uh, and it was clear to me that it was time to move on and then so when they bring in this Matt Reeves guy yeah for those who haven't connected the dots he's the uh, director of all the uh, Planet of the Ape revival movies right starring Andy Serkis as Caesar the Ape yeah so and then he did Cloverfield which was you know that big film that kind of got him into the business of doing big films. Right, right, right. You bring in a, a, a new person. Yeah. I don't think he wants to look at Ben's script and say, "I want to do this." I think he wants to. If I'm going to do this, I want to do my own thing. I want right. to do my own thing, my own ideas, make the character mine. Here's the thing: you come into a Batman movie with a, a level of excitement and a level of terror. 
And the terror is there have been great movies, and you're entering into a history that goes back more than 80 years into the comics. Like, people have their version of Batman in their heads. They're going to compare your version to that. You're really just a custodian for a character. Someday somebody else will get the mantle, and they will take Batman, and they will do what they think is right with Batman. And so you're terrified. And what artist who's not just doing it for the money wouldn't be terrified of taking on a character like Batman in a movie with your own interpretations and ideas? That's pretty scary stuff. Yeah, exactly. And for me, one of the things that was very clear, I was like, well, we can't do that again. What I wanted to do, though, is I wanted to find a way to recontextualize his origins. I wanted to touch on the origins without seeing the origin tale. So while the whole negotiation for Matt Reeves is going on and bringing someone else in, what I think what Warner is finally learning is that there's profitability in past franchises that they've negated. And so... And I think this was even a, a let's put our foot in the water and see how it's taken in by a lot of fans. So they put out the news that DC Comics was going to do something called Batman 89, which is a comic book series that picks up from the Keaton Tim Burton universe and carries on as if the Val Kilmer shit never happened. Right. Okay. And it continues on and it even brings in the likenesses of Billy D. Williams as Harvey Denton shows him turning into Two Face and what it would have looked like in that whole world. Oh, okay. And that thing, it was a huge success and everything. So I think once they threw out the news that they were going to do that and it was accepted so well, that probably got them thinking. You know what? Maybe we should get Keaton back in this role. So I think that's what got him playing around with. Why does there have to be one Batman out there? Right. Why can't we have many Batman out there? Right. Kind of well, and especially with this whole Spider Verse stuff and all that, you <laughs> right, know, I right, think right. They, I think they're kind of drawing from that. You know, like, yeah, let's play around with it a little bit, even though they're not all in in same universe, they're just existing at the same time. To basically go off of what you're saying, this you know it as the Spider Verse right now. Everyone knows the multiverse because of the Spider. But what Zack Snyder was doing in his original cut of mm -hmm. Justice League when he shows Flash slowing down time, what that was something called the Speed Force, which opens up multidimensional stuff. So if that movie would have held its place yeah. and came out like it was, it would have beat the Spider-Verse by about right. two years. Right, right. So I, that makes sense. Who the hell are you? I'm Peter Parker. I am Spider-Man in my world. But then yesterday, I was, I, I was just here. So that's kind of cool. That that's cool that they did that. And and like you said, that yeah, Michael Keaton did reprise the role as the aged Bruce Wayne. <laughs> yeah, in, he's in the Flash which is a movie that has not yet been released that uh -huh. links all of the DC universes together. Oh, okay. Are you in? So Matt Reeves is officialized as a director with his own version of how this Batman, his Batman is going to look. Like we talked about in previous two volumes, mm -hmm. you have the comic book, you get a new artist, a new artist comes in with his interpretation of him. So he's going to create a whole new world for Batman. And so he right. comes in and starts setting up his world. And basically, what are the tones that he brings into this film? What we've seen come before it? And what does he bring to it? So uh, I remember when I first heard the buzzings about, because I never really put it together who Matt Reeves was, and I kind of forgot 
the okay. name behind the Planet of the Apes movies, right. you know? And I was just more focused in on the Andy Circusness of it, <laughs> you know. Oh right, right, right. And and the the amazing CG work in that movie, those movies, and um, right. that I never really even zoned in on who the director was. So, but, but I do remember hearing whoever it was, the director, Matt, this Matt Reeves guy, uh, mm-hmm. saying something about wanting to make it. Uh, to, to bring Batman back to his roots like we started in the very beginning of this series right. the volume one where he's he's basically a vigilante detective right? right he's a civilian going out at night trying to solve crimes and right. I remember hearing that and thinking oh yeah that's smart I think that's really cool I think oh, yeah. it's smart and I just hope it's not a little too you know Adam Westy right. there's a lot of ways that could go wrong you know right. but I think it, it and, and then and the idea too I guess if you are basing it from that original Batman what was popular back then is film noir right, right. where it's you know that you have a Sam Spade kind of character who mm-hmm. starts the movie with a voiceover and kind of gives you the you know she was a down-on-her-luck girl walking through the streets at night, and I saw her come into my office and knock my socks off, blah, 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 you know, <laughs> right, all that right, shit, right. right? And I'm like, okay, okay. I remember hearing that and thinking, that has a lot of potential to be really good, mm-hmm. as long as it's handled well. I remember hearing it, too, and liking uh, his previous work, Matt Reeves' previous work, and hearing what he was going for and liking it, but after hearing... This Batman that I liked from Batman v Superman and all of that right. stuff, and what Ben was gonna do with it, and knowing how he was so interpretive of that comic book character that I love from '86, right. I was so high off of that idea that when I heard, "Oh, we're going back," uh, does that mean we're gonna have to go through the origins origin all, story yeah. and right, see right. the, you know what I mean? And I was like, ah. You know, it was hard to not, for me anyway, it was hard to not be like, oh, we're taking two steps back. The way in which I wanted to touch on the origins is that I wanted the Riddler to just be describing the history of Gotham and that that history, it would have to touch on the Waynes because the Waynes mm-hmm. are the are, are you know one of the founding families of Gotham. And I thought, you know, what's interesting is, in a way, Batman, Bruce, is kind of stunted. He's stuck at that time of being 10. There are certain ways. His image of his parents is the image of a 10-year-old's. He idealizes them. He he see and, and this is this fight is in some way for them, and he'll never be able to bring them back. But there's there's no human being that could live up to the image that he's created from those 10-year-old eyes. And I wanted this story to shatter that. I wanted him to start to see the grays. I wanted him to see his origins and understand that his parents um, were human and flawed um, and and still the parents that he loved, but kind of take him and shake him to his core so that he could even question the nature of what he was doing at that moment. Was it even the right thing to be doing to be Batman? So in that way, I wanted to get into the origins, but I didn't want to see that scene. I didn't want to go into Crime Alley and see the pearls on cement. It had been done. And somewhere along the way, you had mentioned to me too that the movie Seven was an influence. Yes. And and when I heard that, and then I thought, okay, that's a detective story. Right. And then I thought, and it's, you know, it's David Fincher. Our, Fincher. You know, contractual obligation. Yeah, contractual <laughs> obligation to bring <laughs> David Fincher into every episode. <laughs> it's a fucking amazing movie. And right. the look of it is stunning yep. and dark and creepy. And, yep. uh, and I'm like, 
when when you had mentioned that to me, I said, okay, now I'm really. When you tie that into the, you know, what you said about bringing it back and right, I thought, well, this this could be cool. This could be cool. Uh, um, but we'll see. You know. Yep. No, for sure. I didn't totally put it out of my mind as far as writing the movie off. I I, I was excited about what he was going to do with it. And being that, you know, I have no control over what they're going to put their money into Warner Brothers for with their Batman property. So I was like, well, you know, I can be a naysayer. I can just whatever. I guess we'll see what, what, what we see. So he had a teaser. He wanted to put something out as soon as he possibly could once he got his his cast together, which we'll get to that in a minute. Right. It was just like red background with yeah. music because he had Michael Giacchino, who does the score for the movie, do the theme right away. Michael Giacchino loved the character of Batman, apparently, so he came up with the theme right away. And they just put that music over Pattinson in the suit, standing in, in this red background, slowly mm-hmm. panning back so you can kind of see what the suit's going to look like, but it's in silhouette, so you can't right. see really, but you see yeah. like the red, enough of the red light illuminating on the chest piece. And... And all of it, like out of nowhere, all of these fans are coming out of the woodwork saying, "Did you see how the bat symbol looks on the chest? It's, it looks like it's he's taken a, <laughs> it's taken the gun that killed his parents and turned it into the symbol on his chest." Like all of these weird theories coming out. <laughs> I didn't, of, I didn't hear that. Yeah, no. no, they were. Yeah, it was, it was real geeky comic book yeah. guy stuff. And so all of that stuff was coming in. And I just was like, it's smart. I thought it was really smart how he. Introduced the character before you started seeing sneak shots of what the Batman looks like and all of this right. shit, you know. Mm-hmm. It was a good way to introduce the the tone with mm-hmm. that music and mm-hmm. then that red background, which you didn't really know what was going to happen, but the red plays a pretty prominent uh, yeah. part in yeah. the marketing and the movie and stuff like that. And so I thought that was smart as a director. So once I saw that and heard that music and, and saw that, my it was started alleviating a bit more of my, my fears. Well, I think we it happened with everybody where we were a little concerned about the Heath Ledger Joker thing, and you're like, well, it's so out of place. You, know, The Robert right. Pattinson thing, I didn't fully go like, oh, this is going to suck, because right. I, f- I felt like I'd done that before <laughs> right, right. and been totally proven wrong. So right. I'm like, but I'm also like cautious about right. it, because right. I'm like, dude, I can't stand twilight right. <laughs> you know right. and he hadn't done i hadn't really seen anything else he had done yet right. to this right. point so i'm like well what can he do right and he's a scrawny little guy and uh, <laughs> i i remember also hearing you know through all through pre-production before some of the bigger trailers came out that they were he was resisting and they were struggling to get him to put a lot of bulk on right and I think, and I think ultimately it shows in the movie. You know, yeah. he de- he definitely did not get big, but no. but well, that's that's not a problem. We'll get into that later. Right? <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Right. I wrote the story. I wrote the script with Rob in mind. I wanted him to be my Batman. I had no idea if he was going to be Batman. And when it was announced that he was cast by Chris in Tenet, I was devastated because I was convinced that if he was going to choose, you know, he might only, if he's going to do a blockbuster, will it be Batman? And, and would he do more than one? And so when he did, when he's doing a blockbuster with like one of the definitive Batman filmmakers, I thought, okay, so there goes that. He's not going to want to be Batman. I had no clue, you know? You know, from the comic book thing, did, was everybody up in arms about Robert Pattinson or what? The weird thing about the comic thing was once Pattinson was named, there was more fighting going on about 
I want more Ben Affleck or Ben Affleck sucks still. It was yeah, still that right, whole right, thing right. going on. Okay. You know what I yeah. mean? And so it, that was going on so loudly that I think a lot of the people who were cool with Pattinson or middling with Pattinson being yeah. cast was this kind of like, yeah, okay, well, I guess we'll see. That was one of those things where it was a really crazy thing where he was doing the screen test in that time. And in my mind, there was no question that Rob was going to blow it out, you know, and, and we was going to do that. But you have to do it because they've all done it, right? Like you do the screen test, you put him in the suit, you do that whole thing. But knowing that he was coming and sneaking away from Tenet to do that was, <laughs> there was a particular vibe to that. That was kind of cool. I feel like the probably, probably the viewing public were was just like me where right they had jumped the gun on being a little abrasive too quickly and then realized oh i'm totally wrong <laughs> you right. know right. i feel like it's more like wait and see instead of like blah right. <laughs> you know exactly. pitch, pitchforks and fire <laughs> <laughs> that was no hesitation yes even my agents and stuff were just thought like oh this is interesting i mean i thought you only wanted to play like just total freaks all the time. Like, he is a freak, this is another freak. <laughs> you look for things that kind of scare you, you look for things that feel incredibly out of reach. It's such the kind of the jewel and the crown of, of characters. You can definitely see the influence of Seven on yeah. the film. And yes. I think even, you know, again, contractually obligated, Fincher's presence of of influence on mm -hmm. the film yes you can also see what the director has clearly stated as the influence of taxi driver on the correct film. correct and yeah so, uh the, and that comes in in weird ways that i don't even think i put together till you i saw some of your notes and then i was like right oh, yeah may 10th thank god for the rain which has helped wash away the garbage and the trash off the sidewalks thursday October 31st, the city streets are crowded for the holiday. Even with the rain. The retractable uh, gapling gun coming out of his gauntlet the way it does, that's taken directly from Travis Bickle and the sliding drawer gun hidden in his sleeve thing. Right. Yeah, that, that was the thing that when you put that in there and I was just like, holy shit, I can't believe I, didn't, I never really pieced that together. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's perfect. Right, right. And, and just and the, the, the dark dunginess of the streets and all yeah. that. Yeah, right. So, you know, you see that influence for sure. And yeah. uh, there's two DC movies that pulls heavily from influence from Taxi Driver. One you're not too fond of, and then this one, which <laughs> I can yeah. think pulls preciously more for your, yourself. Right, because, well, I feel like Joker is more of a direct almost a ripoff in my opinion right, of right. taxi driver you know where it's it's set in that time period what's cool about it though what i think is cool about the fact that joker is pulling a lot from taxi driver and the batman is pulling a lot from taxi right. driver is it helps almost kind of join the universes together right 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 for you sure know? yeah yeah this joker was back in the 70s and this guy's you know operating and what time are we in right yeah now? exactly right. but but they they still creates kind of a a similar feel and vibe or grittiness right. you know what i mean no yeah. yeah for sure the atmosphere of the film is palpable mm -hmm. it's very you can feel the rain and the grime on everything and the dirty mm -hmm. streets and you can you know it's just that's what i love about what he does with this and and pulling from from another inspiration from him which i remember hearing early and then even in the earliest trailer that he finally released it had that nirvana song in it yeah something in the way right He 
does talk about that, Matt Reeves, yeah. in this featurette where yeah. he's like, I write to music and I was playing some Nirvana and there was something in it that just clicked. There was a vibe in there that I thought, oh, this is the mood that I could imagine Bruce Wayne in. And there was, it made me think of Kurt Cobain and there's been a lot of people going like, what are you talking about? Kurt Cobain, that's not Batman. He's this small guy. And it wasn't that I thought that Kurt Cobain was Batman. It was this idea that Kurt Cobain, I think, had a very uneasy relationship with fame. And I thought the rock star edge for Bruce Wayne sort of made a lot of sense to me. I was thinking almost like being a member of the Kennedy family or like the British royals and having to deal with a tragedy and then live in the wake of what was a very public trauma in your life and then have everyone constantly looking at you and saying like, I don't wanna be in that light and kind of retreating and being a recluse. If for some reason that really connected the idea of Rob as well to me, which I, I could see him as having that kind of rock star edge. And it works so good, you know, because that's that's one of those Nirvana songs to me, because Nirvana is from my era, you know, I was, yeah. I'm class of 91, and 91 was the year that Nevermind comes out, right? Right. And they break huge, and they change music, right? They, yep. they basically get glam rock to go to hell, because okay. I hate glam rock, I hate it, but, <laughs> and grunge comes in and takes its place. I might get in a fight with Mickey Rourke's The Wrestler over it. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, whatever, I'm sticking to my guns. The, the music scene before Nirvana hits. Yeah. And you're talking about glam rock. Right. Like, do you know any, some songs that... Motley Crue. Girls, 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 okay. or poison, anything from poison. She's my cherry pie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you have all of that stuff, which is just huge. Yeah. And all these, all over the radio, saturated everywhere. There's all these dudes with gigantic frayed out hair wearing <laughs> full fucking women's makeup and, uh, you know, t super tight leather pants and being as obnoxious and coincidentally having lots of sex with underage girls. You know, <laughs> like, which what do you know? Rock stars don't do that today unless you're Jared Leto and you get canceled. <laughs> but um, <laughs> for others who don't know, you weren't a rock star if you were banging underage girls back in the 1980s. It's weird. <laughs> How much times have changed in our in my one lifetime. Anyway, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's undertones of other bands, you know, like uh, you know, there's a few, there's some Nine Inch Nails stuff happening. That's, oh yeah. That's, but what happens is, is Nir Nirvana and the Smells Like Teen Spirit song that. It, right. it busted so hard and so wide that the rest of Seattle got famous. You know, all the other bands, Pearl Jam and... Right. Soundgarden. Black hole sun, won't you come? And all those bands, you know, the, the Seattle becomes the center of rock and roll. Right. For, for the whole, you know, 90s. And then alternative rock becomes the mainstream. And, and fucking heavy metal has to change. You know, like you look at Metallica. Remember, they cut all their hair and everybody flipped right. out. You know, they, right. they were trying to fit in with the grunge thing after with that. And Because of Nirvana, it breaks big. And then that yeah. becomes commercial. Yeah, and I right. think that's what what Kurt Cobain probably hated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but um, 
But yeah, yeah. so that, just I just wanted to touch on that for a second, just to show what a cornerstone that mm-hmm. moment and music was. For those who didn't live through it, right. So yeah, when you're living through that and you see that, and then that's implemented in a movie, mm-hmm. the way it's implemented in this movie, how it represents so many different facets of, of this character mm-hmm. and the mood of the film and everything. Well, and, and that song in particular, I don't think it was one of the bigger hits. It was, it did get radio play, but it was never near like Heart in a Box or right. Smells Like Teen Spirit and all those songs. So, but it, it, there was, oh, I remember when that song was new and just yeah. like, oh, this, this song gets yep. into your spine. Yeah. You know what I mean? There, it's just... The beautiful harmony. It's like he's harmonizing with himself. He's probably right. doing a dual track or something right. and, and harmony. And it, it kind of gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. But, yeah. You know. The song itself already has this spirit to it. So when Yeah, it's, it's like a, a dreary dread. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And so when you inject it into a, a piece of art, no matter what it is, but mm-hmm. if it's a film and you have visuals on top of that that are perfectly pouring over this representation of that kind of spirit, then right. it, it seeps throughout the whole film. It enhances the sevenness of the movie. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? The, the dark corners and the shadows and the and the kind of gothic looking set pieces and backgrounds. And it's almost like, because to me, I feel like the Batman theme that you talked about in this movie yeah. is connected to that. It's like an extension yeah. of that song. It uses yeah. the same deep tone that kind of gra- like drags through the air in a way. Yeah. all of these other things we've mentioned he's pulling from he's also pulling a lot from comic books he's mm-hmm. pulling from year one and he's pulling from another comic book uh, called Long Halloween which we talked about in previous episodes but definitely what he's doing is he's especially with Batman year one he's taking that character and progressing him to the second year Right, because that's another thing he says in the featurette. He said I basically wanted to say okay year one does this what happens in year two right and then it's even referenced in the movie a few times. He's, you know, I think uh, Gordon says to him, man, he's like, you trust me? It's been two years now, and I don't even know who you are, man. So you see how he's evolving the idea from something that Frank Miller did, you know, mm-hmm. back in the 80s. But what's cool about it, too, is it's still, and I'm not dissing the movie in any way because it's one of my favorite Batman movies, but how Batman Begins shows Bruce learning all of this stuff right but once he's completely immersed in that batman suit it's like Mm -hmm. there's no looking back he's not afraid of jumping off of buildings he's not afraid to swing off of this he's not it's like he's been doing it for 10 years right exactly he's he's batman now right and that's the the thing about that is if it weren't for this movie i would have never have thought of that before you know because i don't know anything about batman year one the comic you know right but then having found, you know, watching this movie and then hearing about Batman Year One, I'm like, well, that is, that's a really cool angle. Like, Frank yeah. Miller is obviously a fucking genius, right? Yeah. Because there, so much of the DC world is pulled from everything that he's written in the 80s, pretty yeah, much, yeah. you know, in the last, what, 20 years of Batman. Right. Yeah. Or even, I mean, if you want to cross the fields over to Marvel, they're even still pulling some of his stuff because before he even did any of Batman stuff, he did a whole. Uh, a daredevil comic book called hell's kitchen and that thing blew mm. up for marvel fans because it finally took this character that was kind of dumb 
And yeah. it made him like, oh, wow, this guy's kind of a badass. Kind right, of, oh, with, the ne- the, with the Netflix show? The Netflix thing, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Right, which is basically Daredevil is Marvel's Batman. <laughs> In a way. It's like Iron Man's kind of that. And yeah, there's kind of a... Kind of right, that. right. <laughs> That's true. Big man in a suit of armor. Take that off. What are you? Genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. So, yeah, what you were saying before, though, is how the film uses, you know, all of those inspirations are poured in through this funnel through Matt Reeves. And then he takes also the ideas of, well, I, I'm in film and I want to use the aspects of film noir and mm-hmm. I want to use a detective story. Mm-hmm. And so let's start there and build this world and this character. And what are these characters, how are these characters going to interact? But I think what he also does to pull from, uh, something that's come before in the Batman movies is where he goes Nolan's way where he says, I want to make this more real mm-hmm. of situations. So I want to mm-hmm. use re- kind of more real fighting techniques and I want to use kind of a, a more real world technique as far as it gets to uh, characters and how those characters are set up and in the whole uh, aspects of, of life in the city and gangsters mm-hmm. and violence. <laughs> So when we see the new bat suit, and um, it, it is very grounded in in reality. It's yeah. very um, military tactical gear, right? Yeah. And it has that look to it where it looks like it's an exaggerated version of something you'd see a soldier wearing today, yeah. you know, or totally. something out of like a um, a video game, like a shoot 'em up video game, like the ones where I can't think of any of the names because I don't play them. Right, right, me either. <laughs> so I can't help you here. <laughs> yeah, but I'm playing Hello Kitty Island Adventure. What do you, so what do you think of that suit? I, I really, really love it. Yeah. As far as seeing how it worked in the film. When I first saw it, I was just like, it, it's a little bulky here and there. And the thing mm-hmm. on the side of his leg, like how, how is that? What is that supposed to be? And, st- and, I, and, I, and you get how they're compartmentalizing all of the stuff he carries with him. When right. you see it in the film and how it all works and comes together, I'm less judgmental about it. And I'm just like, wow, that fucking suit looks cool. But I, there was tons of fans hated that headpiece. Hated okay. his headpiece. Right. I love it how sleek it. it is. Mm-hmm. I love how it looks like armor, but part leather and, and mm-hmm. kind of you know rubber and all of how it all fits in the neck piece and how the hood piece comes up over you know all of that stuff. I yeah. just think it's so freaking awesome. Right, I, I do too. And it, it the, the, you know the forehead is is unusual, but yeah. but from what Matt Reeves said is he wanted it to be shaped like a, a human skull right. to kind of add to the fear. And then once you know that and you look at it and you see it and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yep. You know, and the, the ears are pointing in a way. And I, be, I but also, I think the, the suit has to be bulky because yeah. of the fact that Pattinson didn't, isn't a very big guy. Right. And so that's what I was going to say, going back to what I mentioned earlier, we'll get to it later. I said, uh, the suit very much helps him do that, but also, you know, he's a younger guy at this point, and right. and you know, certain framed people, like say, like me, I'm a middle framed person. Right. When I was in my 20s, I worked my ass off constantly, right. and I could not gain any fucking muscle whatsoever. Right. Once you get into your 30s, your body changes, you know, and that's like when you think more of the the, the Christian Bale Batman, you think right. of a late 30s, early 40s, and and men can get big 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 by that point it's a lot easier unless you're one of those natural freakishly big people like like a wrestler and stuff but I'm just talking about like a regular (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly 
look at how Ben Affleck looked before he played Batman. He was right. a lanky little guy. Yeah, when you think of him in Goodwill Hunting. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, and how big he got. Now, plus, you know, uh, that the whole sports medicine is yeah. leapfrogged people into <laughs> right. being able to, to be even incredible Hulk size by the age of 55. So, yeah, seeing, and I think that this is another way, too, because I've heard Mad Reeves talk about how they wanted a certain look for Bruce, and then the more they got into the way they were filming and how. You know, there was resistance in certain areas of how big should Pattinson get and him right. not wanting to and all this. He started to embrace more of that thing that we talked about in Volume 1 where Tim Burton was saying, I think the suit should be the thing that makes Keaton look intimidating. Right. And so that kind of plays into what you're doing. I think the suit helps Pattinson really give that presence. But it's funny. It's like as soon as you put on the suit... <laughs> It sort of does something to you. You start behaving in this quite particular way. And it might be about the kind of restriction in the movement and stuff where there's definitely elements of just the kind of um, practical aspect of it. I think Robert Pattinson in the suit is the most intimidating. Yeah. The best performance of Batman I've ever seen. Ever. Boom, put a stamp on it. Yeah, <laughs> boom. And that's it. That's He stole the mantle from Christian Bale. <laughs> I am... Stunned, you know, and and this and because I came with such a low opinion of him from the Twilight right. thing, which you know, like I did the same thing with Leonardo DiCaprio way back in the day, right. before, you know, because I'm thinking Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt too, yeah. yeah. Leg- we talked about that, Legends yeah. of the Fall, Brad Pitt, and right. uh, you know, uh, Thelma and Louise, Brad Pitt, and right. the Beach, Leo DiCaprio, and and <laughs> Titanic, Leo, and then they they show their talent in real gritty movies, right? right. And then you learn to love them. Yep. And this is, and Pattinson has done this too. But but I did see The Lighthouse about maybe four months before I saw The Batman. And I'm like, all right, this kid's got chops. I get it. Right, you know right. what I mean? He's And he's doing that thing like Harry Potter kid did where he's doing obscure stuff to pull himself right. away from that boyish image of Harry no, Potter. I, I started seeing like, because I worked in the theater business for a while, we'd get yeah. these obscure movies every now and again. So I'd see Pattinson showing up and what is this crime drama thing he's in? What right, is this right. Western thing he's in? What is this weird, obscure, uh, like David Cronenberg film he's in and all of this right, stuff. So right. I, I would see them just because, not necessarily he's in them, but because the the movie sounded cool or interesting yeah. or something like that. And each time I'd partake in one of those movies, I'd be like, man, this kid, he's got something. Hey, there's right. something in there. Like, even when he's not saying anything, it seems like something's brewing underneath right. you know and in, in his performance and so the minute i heard he was he was cast it wasn't that i was like oh i was just like i said i was still on that high but i i, I thought he could bring something interesting well and here's what i'll say um that obviously those he they, he's wearing these combat boots that give him a lot of lift so he ends up being like you know a right. couple it looks a couple inches taller you know the shoulder pads make him wider he right. has this presence that i can't even i know it's not true but it's like the eye makeup around his eyes is so like ultra black that right. you can see his eyes and he's yeah. acting a lot through his eyes yeah. because he doesn't talk much, right? Right. And and I don't care what other Batman we're fucking talking about. His right. eyes are doing incredible fucking work in this movie. And, uh, you know, I'm watching it the third time today and I'm just watching him the way... I don't know how to explain it. You can, you know, and, and, and all of the actors have said, you know, there's something about putting that suit on, you know, yeah. it, it changes you. You can tell it changes him. Yeah. It, you can tell he's a different person. You know yep. what I mean? And, and, and it comes, it just, ooh, 
oozes through the fucking camera. Yeah. It's almost like a, I don't know if they're doing like a, a light trick so that you can really see the whites of his eyes. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Just the glances he gives and yeah. the way he. It's 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 amazing. It's so cool. It's so yeah. intense. There's this old interview. I'll go back to Keaton real quick. There's this old interview that Keaton was talking about where he was just like, because the suit is cumbersome, yeah, you you have to project more with your physicality. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, but what you have to avoid is overdoing your physicality. So you have right. to be subtle but still very flamboyant <laughs> at the right. same time. He's right. like, and it's this weird line that you, you need outside perspective to help you with. Right. say no that's too much no that's too big no that and, and and pattinson in an interview said the very same thing he said it's so cumbersome that how how as an actor can i project emotion through this so he said you look at all of the ways you possibly can and one of the ways is through your eyes and your face and how you respond to certain questions and how you know how your your glance is looking and stuff like that he's like but also in your body movement you have to make sure that you're not over moving mm-hmm. You're, you're, and the way he yeah he, he glides he glides through the movie when he's in the suit yeah he's like fluid in the yeah, in the suit yeah right yeah. and he's he almost reminds me of like this animal sometimes the way mm-hmm. he moves around and slow turns of his head like you know yeah. have you ever seen footage of like a deer yeah eating and then right. hear something and it slowly moves like yeah, right, yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's amazing because you know like that scene where he in the very beginning where he's walking through the crowd of cops in that when the mayor is killed oh, I love and that scene there's something yeah, well that's the other thing too is Matt Reeves keeps doing this thing where the camera's behind yep whoever they're following and and, and kind of walking with them kind of in that Darren Aronofsky kind of way yeah, totally um, but without the camera connect you know right and uh you can feel everybody kind of you know, weirdly looking. That's a scene that could have easily been cheesy and stupid. Yep. You know, the fact that the Batman's walking um, amongst yep. the cops, you know, how are yep. they going to reflect? And, and they, I don't know, the magic happened and it yep. worked. You know, it's a combination of obviously Matt Reeves's camera angle and direction and right. the lighting of the situation and the mapping of how he's walking through the crowd and Pattinson's performance as this gliding enigma. Yeah. Martinez. The other thing about the eyes, I'll say, and the facial expressions is he reacts to every interaction. Every interaction is like calm anger. Yep. That's what it is. It's like this, like, even if they're asking or being cutesy or or saying something, he looks at him like, with this look like, I can't believe you just fucking said that. All right. Even if it's a question that he's about to answer, you know, he needs to answer. He just has this look in his face like... How the fuck do you dare ask me that fucking question? <laughs> yeah. The things that you're talking about in that particular scene, in the crime scene for the mayor at the beginning, when he's standing yeah. there and looking at the body and the guy, the other detective that's there, that James Gordon is there asking questions, mm-hmm. he goes to step by Batman and he goes, Excuse me. <laughs> and Batman yeah. steps back just like a step. Barely. But he the whole time looking at him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, right. Like You're lucky I'm not punching you right now. <laughs> right. I No, I paid close attention to that scene today when I watched it again for the third time, and he barely moves out of the yeah. way. The guy yeah. still kind of has to, like, slide yeah, through. Yeah, yeah. He just, no, yeah. I, I love that. <laughs> yeah, right. That shows this physicality to the character that people are like in the same instance they're thinking mm-hmm. what a complete freak yeah. weirdo and at the same time I better not press my luck with this guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's yeah his eyes are telling me a story that I might not right. want to hear the ending to if he's crazy enough to dress like this he probably 
might hurt me. <laughs> right. This must be a favorite night of the year, huh, pal? Happy fucking Halloween. When the Batman is doing his film noir voiceover in the very opening yeah. scenes and talking about how he's created this fear and this presence and, you know, we're jumping around to a couple of different criminals doing their crimes and right. as the bat light shines in the sky, it's obviously the warning, right? And what does that do? And he's explaining it in his voiceover how I'm, you know. We have a signal now for when I'm needed. But when that light hits the sky, it's not just a call. It's a warning. To them. So that every person doing a crime keeps looking into these dark corners of wherever they're standing and they're like, is he there? Right. I don't know. Is he there? Yeah. And then kind of second guessing themselves. Like that dude with the green mask gets hit by the car because he's so freaked out that. Right. Is Batman in that shadow right there? That whole scene raises so much tension it's mm -hmm. and, and it's everything working it's the photography of that the way the actors are responding it's the music in that scene the way it's building and yeah. it's like a ticking time clock of what's happening so what's interesting to that you know when you and i talked about batman begins and you had mentioned how you weren't too happy with because i think he jump cut a little too much the oh, way yeah. they present and i very much liked the kind of tension that was created by not knowing where the batman was that right this is that like t dialed up to 11 this one yeah. goes to 11 <laughs> right except you can see everything <laughs> yeah right yeah i know i know the, 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 it works so much it takes that idea yep and just nails it it nails it that whole thing that we were saying in volume two where christopher nolan was like i really wanted to create the sense that batman was some monster out there and right. he didn't know where he was going to strike. This takes that idea, but really enforces it. It perfects it. Yeah. yeah. Another thing as a comic book fan that I will say, I never really put my finger on this, and maybe it wasn't even ever thought of before, and that might be kudos to Matt Reeves or whoever helped write the script or whatever, but in that narration, mm -hmm. when Bruce is as the drifter, and he's got his cap and the, everything, he's watching everyone, one of his lines in that narration is, I must choose my targets carefully. So he's planning who he's going to help. Yeah. Always before, it was always a situation, and when I was reading the comics anyway, or watching the movies, that Batman's not helping this people over here because he's not there right now. Right, right. But it might be the fact that he's watching that happen and thinking, no, that's not the right time to strike. You know what right, I mean? Right, right, right. one of those things. Like, I want to get maximum potential of right. my exposure. Yeah, and then the lore I'm creating about myself is kind of impeding without me having to do anything anyway, right? <laughs> He's being a, a, a fearful influencer. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I guess what I wanted to say about The Drifter was is I had never – I was never familiar with this. And this is another Frank, Frank Miller. Miller creation, right? Yep. Um, and everything about the concept of The Drifter is – fucking rad right. <laughs> the idea of that i'm like well that makes that makes him so much more tangible in the real world yeah you know because i again like we've talked about in the other episodes i'm very much in love with the idea of grounding all of this shit in reality right and how does he always get from place to place without people seeing him you know he's like riding down the you know, that you know the idea that he's walking around, he's got the suit on, but he's, right. you know, wearing like baggy clothes over it and riding around on this 
dope ass motorcycle, right. you know, just kind of being cool with the helmet on, so people can't see the uh, the I his mean, eyes are blacked out, yeah. so that he, all he has to do is you know let the cape out and uh, yep. put the cowl on, yep. and he's ready to go, you know. And I thought, holy shit, that again, like what I was saying a couple minutes ago, Frank Miller's a yep. fucking genius. Well, before that, what what Frank Miller did with that character is creating that third personality for Bruce right. Wayne. Right. Where it's like this purgatory stage between Batman and Bruce is here, Batman's right. on this side. The purgatory stage between the change of them is this one sole character. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is the character that picks who he's going to be. Right. <laughs> you know, right. at that moment. So it takes it from. While, like I said, grounding it in reality that he's right. traveling seamlessly and, and silently through the town without people knowing it so that he does randomly appear. Right. Because when he's got his drifter clothes on, he looks like someone that will mug you. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, right. They think I'm hiding in the shadows, but I am the shadows. So we'll go back to the suit again real quick on what the camera trick I was going to talk about. So when we have that opening scene and we're following the three different criminals, the spray painters, the, the mm-hmm. convenience store robber, and then this gang of skull face kids on the, uh, on the subway, right? Mm-hmm. When, you know, obviously, he chooses that one. Right. And they're doing their bullshit, and there's, of course, a dark corridor. He must be doing this with effects where he makes the corridor darker than dark can be. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And you hear the footsteps before you hear anything. That's beautiful. That ominous. Yeah, it's just kind of, that's the tension, you know? Yep. These guys are, aren't quite as intimidated by it. They think it's a pretender or something like that. Right. So that... You and I have talked about this off-transmission uh, in our vampire stuff. Uh, in the movie Queen of the Damned, uh-huh. uh, they would do this thing with Lestat, where he's in. There's one scene in particular where he's in. They're in a bar, and the girl that's looking for him is in a bar, and uh, it's a dark bar. And they kind of go to a corner of the bar where you can't see anything, but you know it's a table there. All you see is these gray eyes in the bar of the vampire and as the eyes start to move forward all of a sudden Lestat comes out of that shadow and those are his eyes glowing right. and yeah and I, I remember thinking oh what a fucking cool way to introduce a character right. and Matt Reeves is kind of doing that with the Batman the way he just kind of like materializes out of the darkness you know <laughs> yeah. like you just kind of like Oof, here I am he's yeah. like a, he's like a phantom ghost <laughs> abracadabra <laughs> yeah but but he's not see through or punchable because right. when he hits you he fucking that's the other thing it's like another camera trick when he does come up to that guy the hell are you supposed to be whatever they did on the choreography on that right. i don't know if there's like a right. film sped up a little Maybe, bit yeah. it adds this ferocious intensity to his punches yep there's this kinetic energy yeah that just boom yeah perfect that's the perfect word there's this kinetic energy that's like just moving this person like yep. like like as if a train had hit him it's so fucking Powerful, and then he says, "I'm vengeance." Vengeance is basically, you know, like we said, this is Batman Year Two, right? Mm-hmm. He's still very raw, still figuring out his thing and where his place is and what he wants to do. And it, really, his drive here is not to be a hero. His drive mm-hmm. is to avenge the wrongs that have done in the world and the wrongs that's been done to him. Right. And so I wanted to take Batman and make him be 
um, an early days Batman, an imperfect Batman, and a Batman who was more driven by his shadow side than he even knew. Like, if, if you were to ask people about Batman, they would say, like, oh, he's trying to fight to make the city a better place because of what happened to him as a kid. But truth be told, he doesn't have a choice at this stage. At this stage, he's doing it um, because it's the only way he can think to make meaning of his life. It's the only way he can cope. He's sort of compelled to do it. It's like an addiction. And so he goes out night at night. It's a kind of crazy thing to do, right? He's taking the law into his own hands, and he's going out, and he's he's revisiting the death of his parents in a certain way every single night. And so, obviously, he's not completely in control. And so I wanted him in this story to start a bit out of control, to be moving in a mode of vengeance. It's, it's a phrase we all use now, probably a little overused, but PTSD is a thing, you know? Right. Right. And PTSD has this way of making you relive the trauma. Yeah. You know, you can get caught in these loops of reliving the trauma that caused the PTSD in the first place. So that when you relive it, your your breath gets short, you get angry, you get hyper-focused or whatever like that. And I feel like what Batman is at, at this point is that. Yeah. He's like active PTSD and, right. and, and taking it out on the world. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. He's putting... PTSD to use for good. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Even though it's traumatizing him, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but with the word vengeance, you know, it's like I think it's almost as if the good and the justice is a little bit of a byproduct. And now a word from us. Ooh, my favorite peep. So let's say you want to reach out to us, ask us some questions or make comments that are not negative and mean. No, no, we're very sensitive. Or if you want to participate in some of the questions we ask each other on the show, answer them so we can see your answers. Right. Boy, am I right. If we, if you're going to try and look for us on Instagram or Facebook, it is TFTFP Podcast. And if you're looking for us on Twitter, it's Podcast TFTFP. Right. Yeah, and we also have yes, yes, a shiny, mm-hmm. spick and span little email address Ooh. that goes by the name of tftfppodcast at gmail dot com. Mm, rolls right off the tongue, it does. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. also like, subscribe, and review us because that helps us with the algorithm thing. <laughs> that everybody else says and I'm supposed to say. Spoken like a true professional, Tim. There's definitely this lack of apathy for him because there's that scene also in the movie where the police commissioner has just been killed and they're looking at the body and they're looking at the rat trap that was on the commissioners and they find out that the commissioner was corrupt and oh what is he hanging out with this low life dropper and all of this stuff right drop it looks like he got greedy and gordon says it almost sounds like you think he deserved it and he looks (laughs) at him and says he was a cop cross the line he's skirting the line of what's good he he, you can tell he doesn't he's not that batman that wants to kill but He's okay if it ends up happening to the wrong people, as long as he's not coming from his hands. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That perpetuates basically like where you see his lack of apathy and he's coming from this place of vengeance that he doesn't believe in Gotham. No, not at all. You can tell like he's like, it's not like that whole um, Dark Knight thing where this this city deserves a hero and all that. You know, it's, it's more like... I'm just trying to rid this feeling of right. uh, being wronged and, and right. you know. 
Yeah, it's not about I want to be a symbol. It's right. about I want to make an impact for myself. I want to feel yeah. like I did something because these I've been wronged. Yeah, he doesn't really even. I don't think at this point he believes Gotham is even worth saving. No, you know I don't what think I mean. He is. I think he thinks it's a cesspool, and where are my abilities to do this better utilized than right. this cesspool? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's still a little bit of the tie to the family legacy, but obviously, because yeah. he says that to Alfred, you know, my yeah. this is my legacy of trying to carry on. I'm not an outspoken philanthropist or a politician. Right. You're just going to get corrupted doing that anyway. If this continues. It won't be long before you've nothing left. I don't care about that. It's said a million times by different people in the film that it's like, oh, you know, there's that recluse. Yeah, right. You know, he's more of a Howard Hughesy type of guy that, he, yeah, you know, right. later years Howard Hughesy kind of, you know, he doesn't want to be known as this guy. He doesn't want to fake a personality of Bruce Wayne. He just wants mm -hmm. to be left alone. <laughs> right, because, yeah, well, uh, he gets angry with Alfred when he has the yeah. appointment with the accountants and says, yep. you know. You don't care about your family's legacy. What I'm doing is my family's legacy. If I can't change things here, if I can't have an effect, I don't care what happens to me. That's what I'm afraid of. Have to stop. It's kind of single track minded and, and it's coming from a big place of anger and- Oh yeah. You know, I think, I think. Going to my personal experience of seeing the film real quick is uh -huh. that, you know, I saw it opening weekend yeah. in IMAX. Oh wow. And it was just like, Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> like the sound right. in the movie is so good, and and seeing it so big, and one thing that's not good on IMAX films, one that's never good, is fast cutting. Fast mm -hmm. cutting never works because the bigger it is in front of you, the the less you can see. Right, you know? right. And and even going back to that scene that you were talking about, where, where his confrontation with that group at the beginning, right, you know, it has that whole fight scene. You see the whole area that they're fighting in. It's mm -hmm. covered in one beautiful master shot, so you know the geography of the uh, right. where he's fighting. So right. all of the fight scenes are covered. And, and, and longer shots, yeah. close ups are not. Right, they're mostly back where right. you can see the action and and right yeah right and so seeing it like that and seeing how long takes he he, he stays on things long he uses this long steady like you're saying he's walking behind people or mm -hmm. he, there's a camera on the back of someone riding their motorcycle and it stays on that for like 30 seconds even at the beginning right. in the opening scene where the riddler kills that mayor guy when yeah. that tool that he's using to kill it flies up and lands on the ground yeah it stays on that to show you to right it stays on it for like 30 seconds which is like unheard of right 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 <laughs> you got a lot of cats never think about strays It's a big point of contention for for Tim from the the, the trailers here. Yeah, I wasn't sure how this was gonna work, right? right. Because it, I just struggle with this character anyway. Right. And is it gonna get silly and attaching the cats to her and all that kind of stuff? You know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Right. I was I I came into it very like this. If it, anything's gonna be bad in this movie, it's gonna be trying to bring the Catwoman thing. And to be honest, I didn't mind it at all. I liked it a lot. I thought it was done well. Yeah. 
you originally said that it was going to be in a previous uh, volume. You thought eh, it's, it's a it's a careful tightrope that they got to walk. And, yeah, and, exactly. And with with that character, what I like about her, I mean, one Zoe Kravitz. I haven't seen her in a ton of stuff, but what I have mm-hmm. seen her in, she's stood out. Yeah, as a right. talent, and so right. I I she's sleek. Mm-hmm. She moves quickly. She's got mm-hmm. you know she's beautiful. Yeah, but she's got a really good talent, and the the scene that stands out the most to me about how complex a job she has in this one particular scene is Batman gives her these contacts she has to wear. That's a camera. Right. She goes into right. this club, the Forty Four Below, and she's an actress playing a part, and the part she's playing knows she has a camera in her eye, and yeah. she has to not want to look at these people. Right. Don't look away. Only time to make IDs. Great. But have to look at him. So she's responding to Batman in her ear, in the earpiece, but also talking to people that are right in front of her face. And she's having to look at the people for a long period of time, but act disgust. That is a that's a balancing act that yeah. could easily fall apart. And she does that so beautifully. <laughs> right. And well, here's the here's the thing about that though, because every time I watch that scene, yeah, I put myself into the position of what it must be like to be a, a woman and right These guys have a little problem with eye contact don't they feels good doesn't it yeah baby feels real good and to be in a place full of creepy dudes you know objectified like that yeah objectified where yeah. you're like god you know i every, every time i've seen that scene i've like i said i've seen the movie three times yep. i think you are constantly being prowled you know dagger eyes no matter What's where you say? go guys are gross <laughs> yeah <laughs> right and and that scene shows that so like, because what she would do if she wasn't spying for Batman right. in that particular time is she'd be ignoring all these guys, not giving them contact, not giving them the time of gay, right. you know, and then she, yeah, like you said, she's being forced into a situation where she's having to look into their eyes right. and then engaging all these guys, which is basically, you know, right. un, uh, like unleashing the hounds. Wait, who was that? Oh, I saw him. Look back. If I look back, it's going to be a whole can of worms. I need to see his face. It gives them permission to harass her. Well, I mean, the gross men think it gives them permission. It doesn't, but they perceive it that way, yeah. Right. That's the DA, Gil Colson. And he's coming over. You happy? Talk to him. And she's having to look pleasantly at these people that normally she wouldn't give the time of day and probably kick their ass if they tried to touch them. Right. And so that acting ability to pull that off believably in that scene, mm-hmm. you never, I never am once taken out of the movie out of what I just said about wow well, she, what a great actress she's pulling this off it's only mm-hmm. afterwards when you re when I saw the movie a second time I was just like man she's phenomenal in this because mm-hmm. she does she shows her disgust and not wanting to look at him hears his mm-hmm. voice looks back with this completely different face like Ooh, mm-hmm. hey hey sec. Mm-hmm. you know she's putting on that part and it's a woman playing a part of a woman playing a part and uh, yeah. I love that stuff yeah right and so if you do it right it's it's really good but the other thing about her too is she's got this personality mm-hmm. that fits the cat woman mm-hmm. i think she can take care of herself the way you know the how she handles herself right. is all of those times that happen in the movie and sure it might be done from stunts or cg or whatever is used uh, but i'm not taking out of the moment by thinking right. oh she's on a wire right there oh she's. yeah right right i really felt for her her story her past her strength i really found a character who was more than just a sidekick or more than just a good-looking girl in a tight outfit 
she's a survivor. I mean, these characters, Batman and Catwoman, have been on the comic pages for so long that they can pull from so much because there's a lot of chemistry in the evolution of those comic books and their relationship in the comic books. So uh, yeah. uh, one of my favorite things that Matt Reeves does pull from that in this film, in my opinion, as a comic book fan, is that uh, there's a scene where Catwoman breaks into this place and breaks into a safe yeah, right. to get this passport for uh, one of her roommates who's kind of at the center of this whole mystery of the film. Right. And Batman, of course, is there, catches her. They have this little fight. After the fight, Batman's able to get this passport away from her, and they start to squabble a little bit more. Right. And then Batman grabs a hold of Catwoman, and they're hiding behind this wall as the security for this place that they're in comes in to check the room because apparently he heard them squabbling. Mm -hmm. And Batman's holding her, telling her to be quiet. And they're breathing heavily because they just had this big fight. And their breathing starts to become rhythmic and in sync with each other and then it slows down and I love that scene because to me that's kind of sensual without being sexual yeah and that's right, a perfect right. analysis of of their relationship in the comic books there's a lot of things that happen between them the chemistry between them that's sexy but not sexual and this really captures the spirit of that I'm gonna find him and I'm gonna make him pay you gonna help me help you yeah I thought you were vengeance. Your friend got involved with the wrong people. She didn't know any better. Maybe you should have explained it to her. What the hell is that supposed to mean? It means your choices have consequences. Jesus Christ. Choices? You know, whoever the hell you are, you obviously grew up rich. It's like all of that is the character to me, and I, I think that not having seen her in a lot helped a lot with easily putting that image on her of the Catwoman I know, mm -hmm. comics and stuff like that. That really helped me. Instead of, like I said, having a problem of hearing someone's name that you know like Anne Hathaway and, right, and right. having to fit her in this box and, and all that stuff and having to pull off all of these things and uh, I mean what I hit on in the, the previous volume is that Catwoman in this movie has a major part of the story that yeah. cannot operate without, without the story right? without right. her Mm -hmm. And so she's integral to the movie. And right. that's what I really, really, really love about her in this part. Yeah. There's, uh, she's obviously very good at movement, too. I don't know yeah. if she did dance or whatever, but um, right. you know, the fight choreography is very smooth and fast. And, you know, yeah. like I said, like you said, it could be a stunt double. I don't know. But it's, right. there's not a lot of small little women's stunt doubles right. like that. You know, That's what's cool about it, because in the comics, they're kind of two halves of the same coin kind of thing mm -hmm. and the, her movement is fluid just like batman's is fluid so mm -hmm. when you see that little fight between them you know you're just like mm. wow that's real it's fast it's spunky it's you know it's over with pretty fast but you can still feel like oh she's gonna don't think don't count her out yet man you know you assume the worst in people which well maybe we're not so different after all so the villain is the Riddler. This was another one that I was a little worried about when they announced, not the, the actor, but when they announced mm -hmm. that the villain was going to be the Riddler, I was like, yeah, Oof, that's a hard one to pull off. Right. <laughs> How right. are they going to do this and make it like not lame? Well, and this is where the sevenness comes off yep. and, and that whole uh, character of this clever kind of serial killer and seven that's setting up the seven deadly sins and all that right. stuff, blah, blah, blah. But we're also basing it in real life on the Zodiac Killer. If right. anybody knows that, the Zodiac Killer actually did dress exactly like <laughs> the Riddler right. does in that movie. He, there's there's a uh, artist interpretation of the one survivor, there's a, I think it was the second couple by the river who were dating 
Right. And they were making out or having a picnic at, down by the river. And this was a daytime attack. Yeah. Where the Zodiac Killer came out from behind a tree. And he had a handgun. But he's wearing an all-black outfit. Mm-hmm. He has. He literally has the Zodiac symbol on the chest of his outfit. Right, like he's a Zodiac superhero. <laughs> right, exactly. And he had a hood over his head, almost right. like a like an old timey executioner in a way, with the eyes cut out. And yes, he the Zodiac killer wore glasses, so he wore his glasses on the outside of the hood. So it, right. and and in the fact that the Riddler is using ciphers these uh, you know as codes and all that stuff this is directly taken from the zodiac killer cases it's a brilliant way to intermingle those because the director also said that david fincher's the zodiac movie highly inspired like there's there's moments of of that and then you can see them yeah right three riddles in two minutes you give me the answers and i'll give you the code for the lock do you understand because that's the detective story right that's the you know they're trying to figure this guy out right and aside from just that paul dano being cast in that role right that dude is a a nightmarish fucking dope (laughs) motherfucker i don't even know how to and i don't mean that in a negative way i mean that that kid is fucking rad no no totally i mean if you can hold your own with daniel day lewis your your ace is in my book yeah exactly right (laughs) right because he drank his milkshake (laughs) (laughs) i drink it up don't bully me daniel you bring a guy like paul dano in and then he sees that this part is starting to be inspired by the zodiac he has he listens to those stories of the operator when the zodiac calls to tell where the victims are Mm -hmm. the way that the operator described the zodiac saying at the end of the call he takes that and incorporates it in the voice of the zodiac or uh, the riddler and that's just Brilliant, because right. it makes it creepy. Yeah. Riddle number one. It can be cruel, poetic, or blind, but when it's denied, it's violence you may find. Well, and there's a voice effect that they're using too. Yeah. And I don't know if it's a distortion, like a this is just like a distorter or something, maybe to hide his identity or something. But uh, when he does those in, intense inflections and what mm-hmm. he's, the voice effect gets intensified or exaggerated by it. I'm a big fucking (laughs) proponent and uh, goofy little uh, lovey lad for (laughs) cool voice effects, you know? Right. And that voice effect is... Dope AF, right. as the kids would say. <laughs> well, I mean, you also have the way that he's filming some of the things with the handheld thing. Very Joker-ish from The Dark Knight. Are you the real Batman? No. No? No. no. <laughs> then why do you dress up like him? <laughs> he's a symbol. We don't have to be afraid of scum like you. Yeah. You do, Brian. And because in the Dark Knight, it's unsettling, those scenes. Right. When the Joker's doing that stuff. Very much, yes. And so when you see the Riddler doing this stuff, and, and it, it, it does, it gives this unsettling, like, this is just... And then you also, without even having to hear the 
the inspiration of the Zodiac Killer and stuff. Mm -hmm. You can see it. I mean, I've followed that case for a long time and read the books and love that movie. Yeah. So immediately I'm like, oh, the ciphers and all of that is just mm -hmm. so, so, so well crafted into the story. Yeah. And there's a little, even a little bit of saw with the torture stuff yeah. that, you know, the, the exactly. rats, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, no totally. Yeah. I, I think it's, he's definitely being inspired and pulling from different things. And sometimes that's not a good thing. And sometimes it blends perfectly. It's a great mm -hmm. recipe or stuff. And then and you have someone like Paul Dano who can really bring a performance to it and really make you feel the mental instability to the character. Yeah, he's just one of those guys that can go a little cuckoo bananas yeah. and, 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 and do it well. You and know? you're just like, Jesus, get out of there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And to think he started on The Sopranos or whatever. Oh, really? Once, once AJ gets a little older and has those high school friends, uh -huh. Paul Dano was like his best friend. Oh, wow. So then we have James Gordon played by a bad motherfucker. That's right. That's Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wright. Wright. Yeah. I love that guy. He's so good. He's so good. And he's so, his voice is incredible. Yeah. So he has, he has, he just has this incredible speaking book. I, I came to know him through Westworld, right? Is that how you knew him? Uh, no. My name is Peoples. You know why they call me that? Because Joe always takes care of your people. Yeah, actually, Morole. One of the first places I remember spotting him was in, not that it's a great movie, but that 2000 Sam Jackson reboot remake of uh, Shaft. It has Christian Bale in it, too. Uh, but uh, Jeffrey Wright plays this really over-the-top, flamboyant kind of villainous character. And I remember spotting him then and thinking, out of this whole movie that I don't think is so great, he's really standout in him. And so, like, putting a little stamp on him and saying, I'm, I'm going to watch this guy. Right, right. It's because we use host to do most of the surveys. They're programmed to ignore this place. They literally couldn't see it if they were staring right at it. But yeah, Westworld was one of those ones where I really started to see... Like, yeah, that was kind of his, his breakout role. I think yeah. he had been a, a busy actor. But right. because he wasn't, you know, he was buried in his work, character actor, not famous, and and Westworld was high profile enough that it broke him. And right. now he's doing all, you know, that's why he gets these roles that he gets now. Right. Yeah, and he's just a cool dude. You yeah. know, I've heard I've heard him on a podcast being interviewed and stuff like that. And he's just uh, he's got a little bit of a, a musicality to the way yeah. he expresses himself. You know, that yeah. I really enjoy. And, and yeah, and he's just kind of like he's confident but yet insecure at the same time. I don't, yeah. uh, Gordon as lieutenant is still a cop in the street. It's early year two of Batman's story. So they form uh, the beginnings of this partnership and do detective work, trying to solve the mysteries of the nefarious Riddler. And it, uh, it really gives me or gave me an opportunity to be at the heart of things with the character and be, you know, in the dirt uh, that is uh, the decaying Gotham. And so uh, uh, was really attractive for me and, and drew me to, to want to be a part of this. He's one of those guys, like I say, I, I fucking love him. And anything I've ever seen him in, he's never mm -hmm. bad in anything. Even if right. what's around him is bad, he's right. solid. Right. And so when he was announced as James Gordon, I was just like, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. I would have never, ever thought of it in a million years, ever. Right, right. So kudos to whoever cast him, Matt Reeves yeah. or whoever it was. But he's so good because, you know, what Gary Oldman did with the character in the, the Dark Knight trilogy and everything, mm -hmm. you see that 
that relationship evolve. But that relationship between those people or those two characters, Batman and James Gordon, and the Nolan verse never seems more intimate or friend friendly. No, they weren't. It was kind of business and right and he's almost like just in awe of the batman the whole right. time right mission love set up a massive task force to catch you he thinks you're dangerous what do you think i think you're trying to help what i love about this one is that one it feels like this james gordon J jeffrey wright's james gordon has lived in this city for a long time knows exactly how it is has chosen to not be a part of this corruption and really he's where batman ends up at the end of this movie mm -hmm. he's at that stage right now he thinks the city does deserve to be saved right and he's right. doing everything he can to save it and not right. be corrupt and all of that stuff you know when being a, he's a little naive to yeah how deep it goes too oh right, right? yeah for sure that's what i love about Jeffrey Wright's James Gordon is he seems like a James Gordon that's been in this city maybe his whole life and that gives a little more credence as to maybe he saw Gotham in its better days its glory days and knows that it can obtain that again right it just is going through dark times right now and so yeah I love that about his uh, James Gordon that he feels lived in in this city he feels like he belongs in this city and he, you can actually see that rub off a little bit on Batman and that relationship between James Gordon and Batman in this I love it because you feel like they're on each other's side they've got each other's back right and uh, that is truly something that's unique right Right. And Jeffrey Jeffrey Wright is is the comic relief, you know. Right. That, not that not that it's even that thick. It's just fun little like re reactions, like the thumb drive thing. <laughs> the and thumb drive is beautiful. Try this. Oh, this guy's hilarious. No, I really like that too. And I didn't know. Again, that is something I couldn't have pre-visualized. How were they going to pull that off? That relationship right. between the two of them being as close as it is. You know what right. I mean? And right. uh, you know, him being able to walk him through the crowd of other cops and all that stuff. Right. Know? In those situations where he has Batman, where he knows he probably shouldn't have Batman, right. it kind of feels like that relationship where you have a friend that you bring to a party and you're like, yeah. he can spaz out, so I better keep my eye on him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> so right. you're vouching for them the whole time. Right. Like, oh, no, no, they're cool. Right, now I got you on assaulting an officer. You got me on assaulting three. Hey, what's the matter with you? This isn't the way to do this. We have Colin Farrell. Yeah. Coming in as Oz, the penguin. Right, right. And I I've never said this about a Colin Farrell performance. I think he's phenomenal in the film. <laughs> yeah, not even not even not even in, in Bruges. I love in Bruges and I think he's great in, in Bruges, but I don't think that it's a stretch in acting for him in, in Bruges. You know what I mean? Right, that's true. Yeah. Because he's speaking in his Irish right. accent. Yeah, right. you know. And, and and I've seen him in, in good performances, but I've never come out centering him yeah. as like, wow. Boy, you guys are a hell of a duet here. Why'd you start harmonizing? Yeah, you know, he was amazing, and and the prosthetic makeup on him oh. was probably the best I've ever seen. Yeah, it has phenomenal. to be the best I've ever seen because he does not, he disappears. Yep. And uh, you know he's doing that kind of like exaggerated Bronx, yeah. you know, kind of with the you know use guys, <laughs> use guys. But there's that, and there's yeah. something he does too. And I, 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 one of the things that I remember seeing in the trailer and seeing him do it with the way he said that it sold me in the trailer even was when he was just like, oh, take it easy, sweetheart. Yeah, right, that, right, right. Like, oh, that's beautiful the way he yeah, that. it's it's yeah. He's obviously very much modeled after Al Capone. Oh uh, yeah. 
the real life Scarface. But uh, you know, it's obviously it's amped up. The scars on his face are everywhere and all that stuff. And and that's the mm -hmm. way you make that character if you want to make him part of the mob and not yeah. make him the literal penguin like you know like a Tim yeah. Burton thing you you scar him up and you give him that persona and, and they make it a little ambiguous too is you don't really know why anybody calls him that right you know what I mean uh, right. and which is, I'm sure maybe they'll get into it later maybe they won't maybe I, you know I almost feel like leave it alone just let him well I mean he's getting his own HBO limited series so oh, they that's might, right yeah yeah so they might get into that there which that's I right mean, I forgot about that but th that's made it that's kind of crept its way into the comics over the years was penguin going from this silly character to once Tim Burton did what he did with the it started to evolve more it's like maybe there's something in this character that we right. can do something different with and so then he started to evolve into like this mob figure and that's right. where it started getting real interesting so the fact that they use him like mm -hmm. that in this movie is just I love it yeah they, he does kind of have this flashy dressing almost yeah there's a little bit of Joker going on there too, because some of the suits are purple. His Maserati is purple, right? Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, big gold wheels on it and all that. Right. And and, and of course, it's, I think it's you know it's a cutesy little cheeky moment when they have him in the tied up the uh, the ankle cuffs and all that stuff, and he's walking like the penguin trying to yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. That whole scene, I just I love that whole scene. Even the rapport between all three of them are just great. Right. Because he's just like, look at you two, world's greatest detectives. You know, he's being a smart ass, you know. But yeah, he's great in it. And then, of course, you get to Andy Serkis as Alfred. He brings a real right. subtlety. Mm -hmm. You're not overcompassionate for him. You feel like he's an Alfred that can kind of take care of himself when something's away. He's smart. You feel like he has a history, but you're not quite sure where it's come from. You hear stuff about the military and stuff like that. So, I think, isn't he supposed to be, this particular one, supposed to be like a former MI6 guy or something? That's a part of the comic book history in certain parts. So, I don't know how far they're gonna delve into that particular right who knows how deep they'll dive into if they even do and if they should right. and you know he's 007 right <laughs> <laughs> bond james bond yeah, no, and, 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 and that's another, you know, talk about great voices. Andy Serkis has this voice that's just... Yeah. Uh, I don't even know how to... No, huh? And it doesn't matter if he's doing... Popeye or... Popeye or <laughs> Supreme Leader Snoke or... Right. The few lines that he speaks as Caesar and Planet right. of the Apes, you know, it doesn't right. matter. Or Gollum. Yes, yes, and splashes, precious. That's a meaty mouthful. I saw a movie where he played uh, a young Albert Einstein, too. When yeah. He's so good in that. and uh, Yeah, his dialect yeah. is spot on in anything he's in. Yeah. Even if it's directing Tom Hardy in a Venom sequel. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he brings a cool di like dynamic relationship to Bruce. And a difference, you know, because yeah. as much as, uh, you know, who, come on, Michael Caine is Michael Caine. Yeah. You know right, what I mean? Exactly. That guy, that guy rules the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, he's so awesome and everything. Because it, I mean, yours is, is the most impersonated voice in, in the business, isn't it? Oh, yeah, everyone Everybody does. Does. I, I can do it. Can you do it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hello, my name is Michael Caine. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so that's what I mean, to, to get that kind of dynamic in and it not be cheeky. Mm -hmm. They're not going for the cheeky relationship, kind of like they did with Jeremy Irons and Ben Affleck. Yeah, right, right. Cheeky right. kind of relationship. Yeah, it was pretty heavy. It seemed yeah. like there's a lot of guilt and 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 the sadness of the whole thing, you right. know, and how they come together towards the end. Yeah, exactly. 
and he, you know, he feels the weight of Bruce's sadness. You know right. what I mean? And it comes out in his eyes. No, you always blamed yourself. You were only a boy, Bruce. I could see the fear in your eyes, but I didn't know how to help. I could teach you how to fight, but I wasn't equipped to take care of you. You needed a father. All you had was me. And then we got John Turturro. Yeah, as uh, Carmine Falcone, right? Um, I've heard some people not into this performance, but I love it. I love it. I'm a huge John Turturro nut anyway. I think he's... Me too. You don't see this John Turturro very much, this kind no. of slick, slow-talking, very right. competent gangster guy. He's usually kind of got that quirky edginess to him, you know, right. when you think of, like, even in The Night Of, which is a very serious series. Right. He's still this quirky, weird... And, you know, as an actor, he likes to always find a, a strange quirk. Like, in that movie, he, he did the whole itching thing. And, yeah. You know, or, like, with the... In Big Lebowski, he took that character and went, like, to the bananas. fucking bananas with it, right? Yeah. Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. And, and very much. And then I think the Coen brothers have even said, who've worked with him a bunch of times, that he's very much, uh, I'm going to come at you with a haircut, yeah. and this is going to be the guy, you know? Right. And and they never question it. They're always like, oh, yeah, that's the guy. Right. You know, and he, he so there's a physicality to John Turturro's right. performances, and, and, and this one is no exception. Look, your father was in trouble. This reporter had some dirt, some very personal stuff about your mother, family history. You know, everybody's got their dirty laundry, that's just how it is, but you don't want none of it coming out, not right before the election. Your father tried to pay the guy off, but. He wasn't going for it, so he came to me. Yeah, even the low subtlety that he is, even in Rounders, remember how very subtle, quiet mm -hmm. character yeah, he is? Yeah, right. He doesn't yeah. really ever get worked up in the whole thing. That's the Totoro and the Cohen's Totoro. I love yeah. that. But he seems to, when he gets into these, like, especially Transformer films, <laughs> he <laughs> oh, becomes yeah. this cartoon buffoony kind of thing, and he goes yeah. way too far off. So to see him back in a, in a part like this where he's very subtle with the way he's doing things, and he's got that slickness to him mm -hmm. he's just he's really great i mean he's he's very much a, a new york born and raised italian guy you right. know what i mean and and it comes through yeah you could tell like he's probably grown up around some italian mobsters and something like that you know that they've right. been in the neighborhood kind of thing and right. he's modeling himself after one he knew or something i don't know but you, he just pulls that off to me in a very convincing way totally. just the right sort of inflectious attitude in, in his uh, accent, in his New York accent. There. Yeah, mm -hmm. and there's something about the way he plays him that even though he seems like kind of a scumbag, mm -hmm. he's still a slick, I kind of like that guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know he's, I mean? he's manipulative too, because when Bruce confronts him about yeah. his father, he's so confident in how he's telling that story that you buy it hook, line, and sinker, yep. you know? And then, yep. so then when he gets the real story from Alfred uh, 10 minutes later or whatever, or in the scene, you're like, oh, that son of a bitch, I <laughs> fell for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. He, he's got that humanistic kind of, you see the human coming out of it. Master manipulator. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's it, the, the humans coming out of the mouth of a snake and then it, it curls back in. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, right. and, and, and I think that sort of being able to manipulate people is yeah. important for a mob boss kind of 
thing, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, I've too have heard what you heard about you know, some people having an issue with it. I think those are the people that think just because there's a mob guy in it, it has to be played by like Robert De Niro or something oh, like that. Oh yeah. You know what right. I mean? And I love that they didn't go that route. Right. With all of these casting. Right. All of the casting is like that. You know, who else would pick Paul Dano aside from probably you know Christopher Nolan? Right. He picks those obscure people to put mm-hmm. in and play these big parts and stuff like that. And I think that's when you get the most interesting performance. Mm-hmm. You know this place is never going to change. It'll be bloody. I know. But the city can't change. It won't. I have to try. It's going to kill you eventually. You know that. So then, one of my big contentions... Okay. ...in the other shows, especially getting to the, the Dark Knight trilogy, was how location was used for Gotham. Right. Uh, right, Chicago, and in Batman Begins, if you remember, right, it was kind of manufactured. Right, a little bit of the skyline from Chicago with a little CG here and manipulated, so it's not a it's not a city I've ever seen before, and it looks a little more dense than what it really is. And yeah, because they have to create the tramway yeah. through the middle of the town going to Wayne Tower, which isn't real, and all that. Right. Yeah, and it does kind of have a little bit of that. Uh, you know, the island that the right. prison is on, and all that. Arrows. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, but then when you get to the Dark Knight, it's like 100% grounded yeah. in Chicago. It's right. Chicago skyline. Where'd the Narrows go? I see the water. It used to be right there. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so I really love what they did with this movie. Mm-hmm. I really love it because I do too. there's manipulation, mm-hmm. but there's also exactly what Nolan was doing. But it's in a city I, I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. And the way that it's dressed with light and the weather and everything mm-hmm. that they give to it, just I'm like, I look at it as a comic book fan. I look at it and I go, yep, that's Gotham. Just speaking about um, Gotham, the character uh, in this film was by uh, our production designer, James Chinland, and by uh, Greg Frazier was incredible. So much information uh, being delivered that we were, you know, existing, yes, in this once grand, beautiful city that was decayed and, and falling apart and wet and sooty and, and, and dense. Obviously, Gotham was fashioned after New York City uh, back in 1939 by Bill Finger and Bob Kane. And um, I think Matt brilliantly has crafted a Gotham uh, for the 21st century. When I saw the film, I was struck by the idea that um, our Gotham is very much in some ways like our America now. Uh, I think that's for many reasons. There, uh, There's this vein of mistrust. There's this uh, sense that institutions are wobbly within this Gotham. And I think that's, um, I think that's relevant. I think that's exciting. Um, what's exciting about Batman, the character, is that he lives in a city. He lives in a major, uh, fantastical, but American city. And so to the extent that our film reflects the contemporary, I, I just think is appropriate in whatever ways it does. And that, uh, again, is a testament to, uh, to the, the sharp pen or the sharp keyboard of uh of mr matt reeves and it's liverpool england you yeah. know home of the beatles uh, right. and oasis but who cares about those assholes <laughs> <laughs> Because there is sort of a, almost like a, a yeah. Romanistic certain quality in some of their uh, city buildings and all that stuff with the columns. And they do a lot of uh, classic Gothic uh, architecture, yeah. like especially in Wayne Tower and all that stuff. Oh, but yeah. even to understand what Gothic means is in the, in the Victorian England, 
people with money and power became sort of obsessed with their own history, medieval history of say 13, 1200s, right. like that, and that kind of architecture. And so a lot of stuff was that was built in the late 1800s kind of had that look, but then they fantasized it so that it became like an exaggeration of what was actual, because like when you look inside of all that weird lattice work inside of uh, the Wayne Tower yeah. and the mansion and all that stuff, yeah. that's, that's kind of like that English Gothic design where right. it, comes from a 130 years ago and it's an interpretation right of 600 years ago but you know then they exaggerate it. exactly you expect to see a coffin in the middle of that room and dracula slowly coming out yeah, yeah exactly right right yeah, yeah. Right. no it has it adds this quality to the scene that's very atmospheric and you feel like the age of the the surroundings around him yeah mm-hmm. yeah and and um but there's also, you know, areas of it that don't feel too old. You know right. what I mean? Because right. Liverpool's kind of built itself over. Uh, it became a big port town in those Victorian times, and then right. it, it kind of rebuilt itself again in the 50s as it became kind of industrial. Right. Right. Anyway, it's a famous port where a lot of the center of trade for England and all that. Right. Well, and the fact that it's not a very photographed place, we haven't seen it a thousand times before. Is you know the problem with Chicago. Right. In, is you immediately in the dark night? That is, you're right about that. When you in the dark night, when you see Chicago, you go, "Well, that's Chicago." Right. You know. Exactly. With Liverpool, you're like, "I don't know where that is." Yeah. No, that's Gotham City when you're looking. Yeah. At it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's what that's that bit of uh, the the word you use is a bit of whimsy that right, adds right. to this you know, your 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 real world building inside of this imaginary fictional land. Right. And so. When you throw a little bit of that in there, for me, it's it's like at the beginning of the movie, even though it's going to seem a little real, saying "Once upon a time." Right, right, <laughs> you right. Know? And so you can let your imagination go a little bit more. And so the fact that you see those skylines like you do, and then you get into the heart of the city and it's grimy, and then you you see him riding his motorcycle past something that looks like you're in Tokyo all of a sudden. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah Tokyo you know? or or Times Square, but not right. Times Square. Right. It's like exactly. a it's like a you know. It, Times Square would be way too recognizable, right. but there is that kind of why in the road and the yep. big city and all that stuff where it looks like right. Gotham City had Times Square kind of right. thing. You know exactly. Yeah. And so yeah, I just love that. I love what they did, the the use of incorporating Wayne Manor in Wayne Tower and the Batcave yeah. directly underneath it, and it's all one big. That's beautiful. He's not in some yeah. mansion off to the. I love that. That's a great reworking of of something that has come before it. Right, and the, like in the beginning when he when he returns as the Drifter, right. and he's going down that staircase and like the subway tunnels, these abandoned subway tunnels, and then he basically drives right into right the Batcave, which is basically you know subterranean yep almost like a subway uh repair station or something right. like that you yeah. know yeah it's great it's great yeah it's super yeah, cool <laughs> yeah it just sets this beautiful tone for the film right and, and so in that location really is a primary character for me yeah. in that film. It really ends up being something that like, ooh, you know, you get those those scenes where you're looking out over the skyscraper and that becomes something we'll talk about later with visual effects and stuff, mm-hmm. like how it's incorporated in that and how you feel as far as tone of the movie in the beginning. It's a lot of night shoots and dreary rain and mm-hmm. all of 
this stuff and as the movie starts to build to a crescendo towards the end you see more daylight there's hope yeah. out there somewhere you know that's a beautiful visual he's operating in the sunlight which never right that's also the transition of his personality and his modus operandi as as the batman too right i have to become more people need hope to know someone's out there for them He's angry, scarred, like me. So I guess now we need to shift into my domain. (laughs) Which is all the cars and bikes and stuff, right? Uh, yep. So, the Batmobile. We you know we've been talking the Batmobiles all the way through this right. whole series, you know. And it broke its wheel. And the Joker, Joker got, got away. away. Yeah, son of a bitch. Yeah. This Batmobile, like, you know, we were talking about in that subway station. You know that, you know what his Batcave kind of looks like? It's, it reminds me of the Night Owl in Watchmen, but a, like a bigger <laughs> right. version of it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. A much wider, broader, emptier yep. space. But Totally, yeah. You can see there's a Batmobile in the background and all this stuff. It's kind of under a tarp, and it has a very muscle car shape to it. And then you see engines lying around. You see pieces of motorcycles and cars. Right. And all the time, he's not there. No one's pointing at those things. He, the, the director is visually showing yeah. you the thing. He's showing you action behind the, these. These items are in the foreground. Yeah. And in the background, the action's going on that you're supposed to be watching. But he's right. hinting at everything for you. Right. right. Love that stuff. Right, and and so when we do finally get to see it and hear it, uh, is pretty much in that uh, when Catwoman's trying to steal the money from uh, right. us, right? Uh, right, at that drug lab or whatever. Right, drops. Drop yeah, heads. drop heads. Right. So That's another nice touch. So it's you know it's, it's it again it's another one of those camera tricks where you it comes out of the shadows it's it the car is off in the in a dark alleyway and it all of a sudden the engine starts and you start seeing the flashes of the exhaust and and the sound is the, oh my god the sound <laughs> of that thing is phenomenal you know. <laughs> So what it is basically is is it's it's a made up car. It's not a real car. But right. they did like in they did with the Tumblr in the Dark Knight series, they wanted something that could be practically used. You know what right. I mean? They didn't want to have a lot of CG stuff and if they're gonna jump it, they wanna really be able to jump it, right? And we had so we had a whole palette of places we could put the camera and we put it everywhere. I wanted it to be yeah. a practical thing that felt like a 70s chase, like like the French Connection or Bullet. I wanted hard mounts because when the car shakes, I wanted the camera to shake, and I wanted it to feel solid and locked to it. And so for the design, this is something I picked up out of, out of when I was researching a little bit about the, the this particular Batmobile and all that stuff. I found this little tab that supposedly um, is it was pulled from a Looper article, and we're having trouble finding the source material that they talk about in this article, but here's a little clip. I'll just read the quote. The Batman has a prequel novel where Bruce Wayne drives a 1968 to 1970 Charger as a teenager in street races, right? Uh-huh. The quote continues, however, once young Wayne begins fighting crime as Batman, he modifies and edits the car to fit his crime-fighting needs, right? Right, right. So, like, again, this 
this is something that was attached to it. We don't really know what the source material is, what novel they're talking about. I will be finding that out. <laughs> yeah, right. But the reality is this Batmobile is that car. That's, that, that is that it. Because the roof line of that car, that's really the only thing that's a, an actual piece of a car, is the roof is from a 68 Charger. So right. if you think of the General Lee from Dukes of Hazard, or you think of anything, any of the stupid cars that uh, uh, Vin Diesel drives in uh, uh, Fast and Furious movies, those mostly, a lot of times he's driving chargers right which is a cool ominous kind of uh big muscle car right right so it's like right. considered a full-size muscle car especially when it does a wheelie <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's so cheesy like it's on cables right <laughs> anyway but what it is is it's a tube frame car by this point you know and 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 these it has these exaggerated uh body lines that kind of where it flare the back flares into like you know like a, almost a bat type tail fins in a way and right, um yeah. that big giant blocking battering ram and then you you know what would what would have been the four round uh headlights on a dodge charger of that era they were covered anyway. Well, you know, if you think back to the General Lee, the grill went all the way across the front of the car, and then the head, uh, headlights were hidden behind the two ends of that grill. There were right. these little vacuum-operated door flaps that would open up to expose the headlights. And you can kind of, I mean, they're not doing it directly, but you can when, when the headlights light up, they're a very dim version. You can see those four round lights that would be like charger lights, but they're hidden behind this big blockade bumper thing he's got. Right. Kind of jutting out of the grill of that car. Right. This thing has this crazy suspension on it. It's all-wheel drive, which is, that's new for the Batmobile, right? They're, they're, okay. None of the Batmobiles were all-wheel drive before. Right. And uh, it has a kind of a Baja 1000 trophy truck kind of suspension on it, so it can jump and land and, and crash. But I was going to say, you know, there's definitely Charger, but I also see a little bit of like a, a 66, 67 square body Malibu in there, or Chevelle, you know, Chevelle Malibu. And um, it's got two engines, right? You have the, the one under the hood that kind of throws out flames from under the car as it's, as it's idling. <laughs> And it has this cool twin turbo V8 in the back where the exhaust coming off the turbos kind of collects and gathers at the very back and creates this afterburner effect. And it kind of looks like it would be a quad cam, a dual overhead cam V8. The harsh truth about this motor is that it's not real. It's totally made up for the movie. It doesn't run the car, it doesn't power the wheels. It's just sitting there looking cool. You know? Right. So there's no real kind of science behind that afterburner and how it works. Right. It's like those guns on the front of the Bat Bike and the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah, they just kind of yeah. they jiggle around a little. Yeah. yeah. The engine under the hood is is an LS3. They had three movie cars, right? Mm -hmm. They had the detailed one that did was the hero car, you know, for right. all the good shots of close-ups and all that stuff. And believe it or not, that car was actually electric. It had a, a Tesla right. driveline in it. So it was, and, and it turned out that actually worked really good for production. So it's quiet. <laughs> yeah, it's quiet. You can't hear a yeah. thing. And, and, and it doesn't interrupt with the, you know, uh, directions or lines being right. said or any of that stuff. Um, right. But then there's the hauling ass car. That does have a, an actual, there's a hauling ass car and then there's the jumping car. Right. And the jumping car literally did actually have a trophy truck suspension on it. The point was to make sure 
that everything felt as real as possible, as practical as possible, and in those places where it is CG, because there is CG stuff, it was all done from the point of view as if you could only do it with a camera. So there, I never do a CG shot where you break the laws of reality, meaning you'll never see a shot from me where the camera is a bullet or something like that, because or like moves through walls, because then you start going, oh, that must be a CG shot. I want to do something as if you only have the technology that would have been available if you were shooting it practically. And both of them had these um custom-made uh, bespoke transfer cases so that both of these gasoline-powered cars had could be front-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive, or all-wheel drive, so they could mm -hmm. change between the two. And then the engine that you hear is an LS3. The LS Chevy engine is, is like the engine of today. Everybody puts them in everything else that's very cheap, affordable, and makes tons of fucking horsepower with a little effort. And right. the two LS3s that they had were about 700 horsepower, and this was just pretty impressive. You know, that's a, wow. that's pretty powerful. And it sounds like it. It sounds fucking great. It's like they didn't have to fake the noise on it. it yeah. They probably only had to add that jet sound to the back. Right. Yeah, yeah that and the weird orange lights coming out from under right. the intake hood uh, scoop. Right. It has a presence to it. That's just for us non-car people, stupid heads that are out there going, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> but what is cool, though, like I said, that tr there was the trophy truck version. That, tr that jump, when he jumps through the fire, that's a yep. real car really doing that. That's not CG. So yep. they... He was very proud to announce that. They, yeah. they had a big interview thing and he was just like that was all real <laughs> I'm yeah. super proud of this right in some cases the shots are full CG I mean the work that Weta did so Weta who did the apes films with me they did this sequence and I have to say the work they did is astonishing they added all of the rain like we did wet downs but they added all of the rain they did all the stuff with the um, the stuff with the trucks falling on him and all that kind of stuff that the work they did was astonishing and I'm not surprised because they're an incredible incredible group but that was an army that helped us to pull off that scene and um, the really some of the best technicians and artists in the world and, and it was a it was really thrilling to see it come together so uh, the bat cycle that he has at the end and then there's a scene too where uh, when we come back to the bat cave and we're kind of zooming over a bunch of parts on the floor right that is supposed to be the parts of the bat cycle what the bat cycle is it's a ducati monster that's been kind of stretched and exaggerated it has you know huge tires on it and it's a right. big extended uh, swing arm on the back kind of taken from the hayabusa uh, street fighter bikes that drag race and uh the motor is actually two motors it's two of the like bmw boxer engines kind of stacked on top of each other it's pretty cool Awesome sounding too, like yeah. Uh, we don't get to see too much of it, just a little bit at the end, you know. Yeah, yep. The drifter bike—that's a totally different bike. That that there is uh, like a mid '70s Honda CV550 uh, cafe racer, basically. Okay. Where you know the handlebars are cut way down, and then the seats really small and, and shortened, the frame shortened, and all that stuff. That's a very popular style of uh, vintage motorcycle and th and th the Honda CBs are the shit those are the ones to have right that and uh, what's her name catwoman rides a uh, catwoman rides a, a BMW R9T which is BMW's modern take on that drifter bike 
you know what I mean? Right. You can go and buy one down at the at the dealership right now. They're beautiful bikes. They ride really nice, and they're kind of they're not full of fairings or anything like that. You know, they're kind of naked, uh, uh, and, and they have a very retro, like a modern retro design, where it kind of looks like a a cafe racer from the '60s and '70s would have looked. You know. Right. The last thing we'll talk about, though, is um, Bruce Wayne's vehicle. He, he has all these images and all that, like the drifter bike, the two Batmobile things. And then he has to be Bruce Wayne. And, and so when he goes to that uh, funeral for the mayor, he shows up in a 63 Corvette. And, uh, man, you know, <laughs> I'm not a big Chevy guy. never really was. Right. But if you're going to give me a Corvette to choose from... That's the one. And 63 is probably the one because it's the first year of the Stingray body style. That's the very first year. And the reason you can tell it's 63 is because it's a split window. And, uh, and so when you look on the back window that wraps around, there's a dividing piece in the fiberglass. That was, Corvettes were built, or still are built with fiberglass bodies. And it was one of the, it was the first American car to be built with a fiberglass body all the way back in 1953. But when the 63 comes out, that's the very first time they use the word Stingray. It has the hidden headlight that flip around you know oh, that right. became that became a, a staple with Corvettes all the way until about 15 years ago right and uh, the, it, it's literally designed after a shark the concept vehicle was called the Mako shark in it they ended up calling it a stingray but what anyway when that that first year they couldn't quite figure out how to do the fiberglass body with a solid piece of glass in the back there so they divided it down the middle and 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 that's what makes those ones even more valuable because it's the only year they were like that in 64 oh. all the way to 67 it's one big solid piece of glass in the back so they're more pricey so bruce could afford one yeah well i mean the big block ones are yeah exactly <laughs> they're all like a hundred thousand dollar cars right. those those that stingray era like i said it ran from 63 to 67 and um well, the fact that it's black, you know, and and, and yeah. it's just really, uh, as far as American car designs, it's one of the most beautiful cars America's right. that America has drawn, you know, right. and and then we've have we've got a lot of ugly cars that we make, you know, except the two thousand Malibu, that's English. <laughs> <laughs> 2000 Malibu? <laughs> I think that was the best year for Chevy Malibu. Mm. 2000. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> so I really like that, you know, and that kind of feeds into the fact that he would have had a Dodge as a high schooler, that he was into muscle cars. The fact that as Bruce Wayne, he's more sophisticated, you know, it's more expensive, it's more high class and, and, uh, beautiful uh, all in black so i and it, it makes a statement to me that they paid attention and right it's obviously there was thought put into it instead of here's a cool car put him in it right and when and which is what they did do for bruce wayne in in the dark knight and batman begins he's in a lamborghini murcielago which right. is like you know any rich guy would have that i guess and right. it's not quite as cool you know right but he did drive some pretty sweet ducati motorcycles in that in, those, right, right. in that yeah. series but uh, anyway all right, that's enough about the car stuff. Uh, I went on too long. So yeah, the use of the volume in the film is 
pretty amazing. They really, they really took. I it. had no idea. That's the part I was getting to. Like when we go up to that place where where James Gordon and Batman meet, and you have that perfect little view of the city, the skyscape mm-hmm. back there. I mean, so beautiful, and and the way it's shot, and the way that they control how where the sun is at the time, and the lighting of it. Yeah. You know, this is the first movie where James Chinlin designed the sets in 3D. And so before they were ever built, I could put VR glasses on and we could walk into the sets. So we walked through those sets and I was like, this is incredible because I could read through the scenes and we could say, oh, you know what? This set doesn't quite work because of this. Can you make this subtle change? And then to just be able to be in that Gothic world that he was creating, I was realizing, wait, we should, I could shot make here. And so in prep, I was able to put the lenses on so greg you know tested all these lenses and i I said i wanted to shoot the movie anamorphic and we had shot let me in anamorphic and i wanted to use that style and we wanted to bring in this level of sort of texture and and visceral grit and visual grit so just so so amazing so to see that and and i figured of course while watching the movie it's like okay well it's beautiful, but um, I wonder what kind of trickery is, is back there. And it is trickery, but yeah. it's real in-camera trickery. That's what's right. so beautiful about it. Right. And the light's yep. really coming from, you know, mostly from, from what you're seeing behind them and stuff, which makes it look so much more naturalistic. Mm-hmm. And that is just, uh, even in the driving scenes where they're, the actors are really in these cars on a gimbal, Mm-hmm. That are being tossed around, completely surrounded by a volume. So they're seeing what they're driving towards, and they're yeah. seeing what's behind them. They're seeing all the action. It makes it all very real and visceral. Like you're in the moment of the scene, which I think helps a lot with what you're seeing on, from the performances versus the action. It, it, right. It keeps perpetuating that tense action that is constantly going right and it's so much better than green screen and you know like first saw it in like the mandalorian and then all the star wars series and all that stuff and 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 i really had no idea it had jumped up to movies yet but uh, and especially you know disney and ilm and all that right. stuff and then that's a warner brothers thing i just, i never would have considered unless they built one for themselves i don't know Right, right, yeah, no, every every company's starting to build their own and everything. I guess the Netflix built one specifically for one of George Clooney's movies that he did for them, and they used it. Oh, okay. And in those scenes, you're just like, Jesus, this is amazing how right. real everything looks and everything. So that, that concept of the volume has really, I think, taken visual effects as far as background stuff where blue screen and green screen was constantly used. That that's thrown that to the trash in my opinion. yeah oh yeah it's gar it's garbage yeah, now yeah. yeah it was exciting to work in the volume because you feel like you're at the forefront of something the volume work that had been done had been in desertscapes not in cityscapes and so the idea of virtually creating a city and James working hard with the artists to try and lay out this city in a way that felt really signature to us the only thing you need like green screen stuff for now I feel like is just like say it's an it's a bloody action seen someone loses a limb and they green screen out the arm you know or part of their face or something seeing more of that stuff and getting that in your head all of a sudden might be why in my opinion a a lot of the newer marvel movies are starting to look more fakey fake yeah as they're going on i'm seeing more uh, wow this really looks cartoony yeah yeah so the, the the fact that they're doing that and then as you mentioned earlier how they're using practical effects as much as yeah. possible That's and right. that whole grappling gun on his arm and mm-hmm. all of that stuff how they're filming him you know spearing the one guy in the club and that whole fight scene in the club you know and yeah. everything. that it's just, i love the the 
elements that they use that that thing in is so good even as it's pulling them to the roof of of the police station and you know well that and 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 him getting shot a bunch of times yeah we know and it's not realistic because typically when people get shot they get thrown back by right. the force I, but there's something about how armor proof he is in that yeah so cool yeah it is. you know i mean it's it's knocking him around a little bit right. but it's not like throwing him off his feet right the only one that does is that shotgun at the end yeah right well that yeah it's yeah. a big blast yeah so yeah I, re- I mean I really dig it of course you have to use some CG here and there and I think that they did mm-hmm. it so well in the film it's implemented so well in the film I can't really point it out all that much every now and again you could see it the one that really stands out to me is when he, squ- he squirrel suits off the building yeah and it kind of that when he hits the train and he's bouncing off of the you know you can yeah. tell that's not a person there right but other than that you know yeah yeah, and and then that's what I mean though. It's a lot of it blends. It stands out here and there, but a lot of it blends because there's a few things that even if you watch the making, where they point out certain things that are CG, and I'm just like, oh, I didn't even have caught that. I didn't even know that. You know, <laughs> right, right. And that's that's where the real trickery, I think, a beautiful beauty of the special effect comes in. To hit on music real quick, because I'm a huge fan of movie scores, as you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they bring in Michael Giacchino for this film, and his score for this is really great. He has a great Batman theme. Once again, you slow it down. It can be used as ominous and threat and what's around that corner kind of thing. But also he uses that Batman theme implemented in action, and it works really well. So it has a real dichotomy to it, that that theme that he made. And it's very simple, a few notes. Like previous Batman themes have been, but really has this core to it that I think really blends well. And then also just the way he does his music, he gives everyone their own theme. Catwoman has her own little theme, and it plays with the strings like previous Catwoman themes have, which is really beautiful. One thing that I think is beautiful is how the song is used in the film and weaves through the score and then also in the world of the film. So diegetic and non-diegetic. Diegetics, music heard within the film by the characters and non-diegetics heard this by us, mm-hmm. creating emotion like film score and everything. So Ave Maria, that song, how it's weaved through mm-hmm. the score, right. how the Riddler uses yeah. it in an ominous way. He starts singing it in the... But I really feel the way that Michael Giacchino takes this score and takes that song, Ave Maria, Mm -hmm. and just weaves it through. Makes it really creepy in scenes. It pops up here and there. Of course, it's at the funeral. But it's really all over the place in the film if you're listening for it and makes it really ominous. But he really utilizes the music in this film so well and really helps punctuate the atmosphere of the film. So I just, I love this score.
As far as some of the criticisms of the film, I will say this. There are some criticisms, and uh, I've heard this said in a few places and read it, read it in a few places, that, uh, well, Batman in this film, he doesn't stop anyone from getting killed, mostly. <laughs> All the people that Riddler sets out to get, he gets. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is a big criticism. Uh, in my take on the film, and I think where Matt Reeves set himself up very nicely, was that this is Batman year two. He's not fully Batman yet. Yeah. So he's going to make mistakes. He's going to have those missed clues that he, oh, I, I almost I almost had it. And uh, that, I think, is, is brilliant to see that to see Batman falter a bit because he is new at this still. He's still figuring it out. Yeah. Second, and probably the biggest complaint was that this Batman film, there's no action in it. Well, there is. There is action in it, but this is more of a detective story, and I love that about this, is that the action is not center stage. It takes place in the film. It's there, right. but... And it's so long, and it's so, you know, that it, that it, it doesn't fill mm-hmm. all the spaces, you know? Right. No, exactly. It's not used to fill spaces. Right? Yeah. No, it's not used. Action in the film is not used to kill time. It's used as a pressure release. Mm-hmm. It's to relieve that tension. Right. And so I think that a lot of people who went into this movie expecting a big extravagant like action film they were extremely disappointed well but for sure yeah there was gripes and complaints about it being uh, boring right yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> so uh, i believe that this is a detective story first first and foremost it's a detective story which i love i think it weaves perfectly into the film yeah i do too it's a complicated yeah uh, very layered story you really have to pay attention to what's going on oh yeah absolutely yeah uh, otherwise it probably is boring <laughs> you know mm-hmm, right if you're not following the thread and trying to figure out who's doing what and mm-hmm. who's responsible for where and right yeah. Yeah, it's trying to get you invested and there's multiple stories going on with the falcone and the, the yeah. cr- well you know what i mean there's that's being explained and then why the Riddler's doing what he's doing Mm -hmm. is related to that. Yeah, it's weaving together. Yeah, right. That's what a good storyteller does. And then there's a little bit of that, you know, to take from reality Mm -hmm. with all the other Riddlers and all that stuff. There's almost kind of a, you know, January 6th quality to that. Uh, Right, yeah, sense of doom. You know, this this, um, social media, he's using social media to gain followers through conspiracy and Mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff and and calling people to action. You know, right, yeah. Which is scary because we know it works. Right, yeah, no, there's that feeling of tension yeah. and doom that the movie builds. It's uh, Even Michael Giacchino uses it in the score. There's this sense of a ticking clock. Tick, 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 mm-hmm. tick, tick. And I think if you're invested in the film and that feeling of tension that it's building towards something climactic, you're being pushed by this ticking clock towards a cliff, yeah. you really start to get involved in the atmosphere of the film and enjoy it. But if you can't and you just want action, it, it's not really the film for you, for sure. You know, you have. I was terrified because I thought, oh my God, we're doing this detective story and people want to see a Batman movie. What if they come to the movie and they go like, why did you do this? We want Batman. And what was so cool was that that part of the movie, the, the the detective part, the audience loved. I was terrified. I thought, at that point, by the way, the movie was much longer than it is now. It was way over three hours, and I thought, this is suicide. You can't do the same shit over and over and over no, again. No, no. It can't be Batman versus Superman, Batman, you no. know, Dark Knight. It can't be the same thing, you know, the short, no. condensed, you know, it has to... If you're going to t- 
tell the story, you know, a different way, mm-hmm. right? Make it different, right? Which is what I think Matt Reeves is doing or attempting. Like, like we're saying, he's being more honest with the material than just about anybody else right. because he's going back to what he originally was. Exactly. Back in the late '30s, early '40s. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I think Matt Reeves set out to make the film about a Batman we haven't seen on screen yet, and that's the detective Batman. Yeah. And so he did that, and I mean, right. while I was sitting there in the theater. I remember thinking to myself, and within the first 10 minutes, like, there is no freaking way this thing is already one of my favorite Batman films because it was doing that. <laughs> I know you, did, you didn't see it in the theater, right? I didn't see it in the theater. No, I saw it. I waited for the, the HBO release, but right. I watched it that first night, and I had the exact same experience. <laughs> I had the exact same experience. I'm like... <laughs> The tone set within the first three minutes, I'm like, I already think this is the best Batman movie. How is that fucking possible? How is that possible? I, the, Nolan had created this thing that I thought was like, no one is ever going to do that again. Right, right. And, and it's not the same thing again. No, but, no, but, no. but I just mean as far as like feeling. making it super gritty. A feeling, yes. Yeah. And that I kept going through the whole thing. I said, well, it's really long, and I just hope... They have plenty of time to drop the ball. <laughs> exactly. Yes, and they and in my opinion, they did not. It just Me. got better and better and better. Yep. Me too. And I, I ended up watching it again the next night because my wife didn't get to see it the first night. So and she wanted to see it, and so we right. watched it together. And right. yeah. Gross. Let's get into some favorite scenes from the movie. Mm-hmm. When Batman goes to Arkham to see the Riddler after he's caught, that's one of those scenes that feel like there's this essence in the air of darkness like Bruce looks like a defeated little boy like he's just been caught in a lie he thinks that the Riddler knows who he is yeah and so there's this ominous feeling in the air and Bruce doesn't really make a whole lot of eye contact doing phenomenal work there mm-hmm. Pattinson anyway is with his eyes looking down looking kind of defeated and everything and then as that pushes forward as the scene right. pushes forward you start to see that no the Riddler doesn't know who he is and right. I just love that scene. It's played so well by both parties. Paul Dano is completely playing up the crazy hysterics there, and I love it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. You showed me what was possible. You showed me all it takes is fear and a little focused violence. You inspired me. Out of your goddamn mind. And then Robert Pattinson is really starting to play into, once he realizes that the Riddler doesn't know who he really is, he starts to come into his strength. He becomes dominant in that conversation and then challenging in that conversation. And I just love the switch there. Yeah. You think you'll be remembered? You're a pathetic psychopath. Begging for attention. You're gonna die. No, 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 no! Yeah, I think I like the three versions of him going to the club. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. You know what I mean? He first time he shows up as Batman, you know? Right. Get out of here, freak. You hear me? That little suit's gonna get all full of blood. Mine are yours. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking great. And then he shows up as Bruce Wayne wanting to see Carmine. Right, yes. 
Bruce Wayne. I want to see Carmine Falcon. Then he shows up as the as the dr drifter, doesn't he? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's so cool. And those stupid dumb twins, you know, they yep. keep showing up and yep. they they kind of become this funny little side character. You right. know, characters, I should say. I got a lot on my shoulders with that psycho running around. He's wasted. No shit. <laughs> I like this girl. <laughs> oh, hey, I like you too. And as I said, I love that, that scene where with... Uh, with uh, Selena in the 44 Below Club when she's doing that spying for him. But what's great about that scene, too, is you've got another really great actor in a small yeah. part. Peter Sarsgaard is so good. He's so good because he gives off this level of just like, I'm in over my head and I'm really freaked out and all I want yeah. to do is just get, you know what I mean? He's just yeah. so, he's such a great actor. And you can tell he's supposed to be a little high and a little off of his, right. you know. He's trying to ease that tension that he's apparently constantly under. And what they're right. also doing there is he's the district attorney. They're getting that district attorney out of the way because right. Harvey Dent's going to come in sometime, you know. Right, yeah, and, exactly. And the, the director's constantly doing little things like that. Even at that funeral scene where the guy's talking to Bruce. And he's like, don't I know you? And then she comes up and says, hey, Bruce Wayne, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and right, to him. And right. you see him kind of like, like that. You know, that, in my opinion, I think that's Joe Chill, the guy who killed his parents. Oh, and he's okay. realizing, oh, shit. <laughs> I think my f thought was, that's a, that's a really good theory. My thought was, is um, he was just one of the guys dressed up as Zodiac, as, uh, or not, uh, as the Riddler at the end. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. could be, too. That's, I mean, it, it's, it's so lightly put there that, that it can, I think it's meant to be probably interpreted a lot of different hmm. ways. But he, he kind of looks like the character from the comics. Right, right, right. right. No, I mean, I mean that's better. Better. What you're saying is better. I like what you're saying. Yeah. Right, right, and right. Because that's why he kind of looks at him like, oh, right. shit, and then I he killed your parents. Easy yeah. back into the shadows. Yeah, <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. I have to become more. People need hope to know someone's out there for them. I'm gonna say that scene where he's carrying that woman to the gurney for right. there, and, and he's covered in that filth. Yeah. And she's scared to go away from him, holds, grabs his arm. And again, it's all with the eyes. Yeah. He, he's, he like shows her empathy, but still has that angry Batman face going right. on. And I'm like, how is he doing that? Yeah. <laughs> it's so subtle. Yeah. It's just that obviously it's really cool set design too, just with him covered in mud yep. and, and seeing him out in the daylight for the first time, you know? Right. It's a scene that it's hard it, I wonder, as a Batman fan, how did they not do that and make it super dumb and cheesy? Well, even yeah, like when he's when he's helping the people out in right. the water and leading them away flare. with the flare and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. that's definitely walking a tightrope. But yep. And and I have heard some people say they thought it was oh, yeah. stupid. Well, why, yep. why they don't need that help? Just you know. Yeah. Right. Get out of there. You're Batman. Yeah. Just yeah. Right. Right. Or they can climb out themselves. They don't need it, you know. But it. Right. But what I think what's beautiful about that moment is, 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 is it's that shift out of vengeance into I need yeah. to be a symbol of hope. You know what I mean? And when that happened the first time I thought I saw it, I was like, ah, oh, that's pretty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, 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 you know what I mean? I, it, it's not cornball at all. Right. And it gives the character growth. He has yeah. his arc. You know exactly. what I mean? Because most superheroes don't have much of an arc exactly. a lot of the time. Right. Yeah. yeah. And what's beautiful about what you're saying, too, is that at the end there, when he's holding that woman and he's taking her to get help, mm -hmm. who is he surrounded by? He's surrounded cops. by lots of cops and stuff. And yeah. all through the movie, 
even as it starts to lighten a bit how they're looking at him like as naysayers and not liking him and stuff it lessens as the movie goes on when he's around more cops but by the end of that mm -hmm. no one's paying attention to him he's a part of the crew you know what I mean right right yeah right. take this key through that door all the way to the stairs that go to the roof and I will say, man, oh man, I do love that scene where he gets to the top of the police station when the cops are chasing him, yep. and he looks down off of that building and <gasps> gasps. He's afraid yeah. of looking down from heights, like a normal person would be. Hmm. And that just goes to secure the two-year period. He's still not the Batman we all know and love yet. Yeah, he's afraid of jumping off of a giant building. Anyone would be. Right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> How do you feel like they treated the Joker in this movie? I liked it. I liked that it was a tease. Yeah. Who are you? Well, that's the question. Isn't it? Riddle me this. The less of them you have, the more one is worth. <laughs> I think that like he treated a lot of things like in my mind if that really is Joe Chill they're not saying hey Joe Chill <laughs> yeah right you know, right the, the, he, he could be over there Harvey Dent could be out there somewhere mm -hmm. Penguin is there but he's not a forefront character in a movie he, he's a plot device to help move the story out there but he's just a side character well and, and he's given power to be right. the villain next time exactly right but everything's like little chess moves Right, tiny chess moves right. here, here and the there. Same, you know? and that's how the Joker is, right? Right. Well, I mean, you can kind of see through the shadows that he has a very scarred face right. and kind of like uh, hair, clumps of hair missing on all that stuff. So, right. you think they're gonna go with the more he fell into the vat of shit things, or so Barry Keon, who plays right. this version of the Joker in this film, who knows. And it's completely up to Matt Reeves and which way he wants to go. This is that precipice that all directors doing any kind of superhero movie, right. Batman movie to boot. Right. Where are you going to go after you've built the foundation of your character? Mm -hmm. And which way are you going to go? And how much of a balancing act are you going to start to pull on? Are you going to go more realistic are you gonna go more comic booky or mm -hmm. and treading that line is you can't do it forever you just can't right. you have to satiate one audience or satiate the other mm -hmm. that that's what's gonna happen so i don't know i by seeing that deleted scene what makes you think i come so cheap i thought you'd be curious you think i could offer this stuff don't you Mm -hmm. And how he looks in that deleted scene. I don't think he's going to go for an acid bath or anything okay. like that. I think okay. he's probably going to go for, by the way it looks, a pretty tortured soul <laughs> that's mm -hmm. had a pretty right. nasty past. Right. And uh, probably go a little bit more serial killer-ish with it. Yeah, and kind of probably, again, play into that PTSD thing. Right. Of, the way he deals with his uh, trauma is through um, laughter and, you know, uh, right. 
the anarchy thing. Right. This is very upsetting to you. Let's get back to him. Why? You are so much more fun. I'm not here to talk about me. What are you here to talk about? I want to know how he thinks. You know exactly how he thinks. Have you read this file? You two have so much in common. Yeah, where they go after this, you know, I'm so happy with how this movie is and it has it straddled so many lines and and came out on top and was really mm-hmm. great the way that they did it. I can't right here say that he's my favorite Batman, but he's definitely jumped ahead uh right next to Keaton. He's mm-hmm. up there. Keaton's just it because that's my nostalgic guy. But mm-hmm. he's so well suited Mm-hmm. For how his his or what he did with the performance and what he brought to the character and not having to really do any exaggeration even that much on the voice even and no everything. just the way no. it's just so subtle about everything was just so beautiful right like yeah for in my opinion uh, you know like I said he he has all of the things that Nolan built and made it better and right. perfected it and uh, you know between Matt Reeves and the writers and Robert Pattinson and all that right. stuff yeah and what's cool is is you know the Batman gets to grow with that right you know a Robert Pattinson gets to grow with if if they stick it out and right. you know do multiple movies and all that right and apparently he's working on the sequel right now, so I, you know, I, I, I'm hopeful, especially if this is the ground floor. But I'm always trepidatious about these. Yeah, things. yeah, right. You know, it was such a big, knocked out of the park first hit. Right. You know, what, what's going to happen? You know, what right. I mean? Yeah, the the future of Batman. You got, you know, like I say, I think Warner figured it out because you got the Flash coming out, and it's got both Michael Keaton coming back as Batman and Ben Affleck coming out as Batman, mm-hmm. and then you've got the sequel to the Batman that's going to be coming out, and so there's so many different ways that you can satiate different appetites out there that mm-hmm. hopefully i think too it's it's probably a positive way to go with it is that if people aren't into the batman style then they can go see that other one and if they yeah. don't you know right. they can go see this you know? well i think we've uh, both have come to the conclusion that we thoroughly enjoyed it yes i think that after two and a half hours i think we've <laughs> yeah. made our point <laughs> right nailed it and having said that, I'm going to nail this button. Okay, to then. end this transmission. Gross. Okay, ready? I'll give you guys a room. Jesus. <laughs> nail the button. <laughs> I walked right into that one. All right. All right.